This is Jocko Podcast number 35 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Weeper was ahead when he and Bourne reached the gap in the wire. Star shell after star shell was going up now, and the whole line had woken up. Machine guns were talking, but there was one that would not talk. The rattle of musketry continued, but the mist was kindly to them. It had thickened again. As they got beyond the trampling, clutching wire, Bourne saw a weeper a couple of paces ahead of him and what he thought was the last of their party disappearing into the mist about twenty yards away. He was glad to be clear of the wire. Another star shell went up, and they both froze in stillness under its glare. Then they moved again, hurrying for all they were worth. Bourne felt a sense of triumph and escape thrill in him. Anyway, the Hun couldn't see him now. Something kicked him in the upper part of the chest, rending its way through him, and his agonized cry was scarcely audible in the rush of blood from his mouth as he collapsed and fell. Weeper turned his head over his shoulder, listened, stopped, and went back. He found Bourne trying to lift himself, and Bourne spoke, gasping, suffocating. Go on, I'm scuppered. I'll not leave thee said Whipper, said Weeper. He stood and lifted the other in his huge, ungangly arms, carrying him as tenderly as though he were a child. Bourne struggled wearily to speak, and the blood filling his mouth prevented him. Sometimes his head fell on Weeper's shoulder. At last, barely articulate, a few words came. I'm finished. Leave me in peace, for God's sake. You can't. I'll not leave thee, said Weeper in an infuriate rage. He felt Bourne stretch himself in a convulsive shudder and relax, becoming suddenly heavier in his arms. He struggled on, stumbling over the shell-plowed ground through that fantastic mist which moved like an army of wraiths hurrying away from him. Then he stopped, and taking the body by the waist with his left arm, flung it over his shoulder, steadying it with his right. He could see their wire now, and presently he was challenged and replied. He found the way through the wire, and staggered into the trench with his burden. Then he turned down the short stretch to Monk Trunch, Trench, and came on the rest of the party outside A Company's dugout. I've brought him back, he cried desperately, and collapsed with the body on the duck boards. And that is from a book called The Middle Parts of Fortune which is written by a guy named Frederick Manning who served with the King's Shropshire Light Infantry in World War I. He served with the 7th Battalion at the Battle of the Somme. And after the war, he became a writer.
in the book, which is actually a novel but based on his experiences, was published as being written by Private 19022. That's how it got originally published. And then after his death, he finally received credit for writing it. And it's a, it's, it's a very powerful book. And I wanted to start with that excerpt from World War I because it is the most shining in my mind and most horrific example of attrition warfare. Almost 20 million killed, usually over a few hundred yards of trench. And I can't, I can't stand that. Attrition warfare is a strategy in which one side tries to grind down and wear down the other side. And they break when they no longer have the men, the soldiers, the people, the humans, or the supplies to keep it going. And it's brutal. And it also gives no real advantage to intellect and to thought and to tactical prowess on the battlefield. And I don't like it. Now the opposite of attrition warfare is maneuver warfare. And that's what we're going to dive into tonight. The book is the Maneuver Warfare Handbook. But as we talk about it, think about it not just being about war and about combat, but about how attrition warfare and maneuver warfare can be easily seen in the way that we lead in the, and also in the way we interact with other people, with other humans, which is what leading is. And so here we go into this book right here. Maneuver Warfare Handbook. It's written by William S. Lind. And we'll get into him in a minute. Here we go with the book. I served over 31 years active duty with the Marine Corps, saw combat in both Korea and Vietnam, and attended service schools from the basic school to the National War College. Yet only toward the end of my military career did I realize how little I really understood the art of war. Even as a PFC in Korea, after being medevaced along with most of my platoon after a fruitless frontal assault against superior North Korean forces, it seemed to me there had to be a better way to wage war. Seventeen years later, commanding a, ba a battalion at Kaesong, I was resolved that none of my Marines would die for lack of superior combat power. But we were still relying on the concentration of superior firepower to win. Essentially, still practicing Grant's attrition warfare. And we were still doing frontal assaults. That opening right there is uh, Colonel John C. Stutt. Uh, Marine Corps, obviously. And he just kind of explained his, his, his career path. Serving in both Korea and Vietnam. And he goes on, the author of this book, so he's doing the forward to this book, Maneuver Warfare. The author of this book has never served a day of active military duty. And he has never been shot at. Although there are no doubt some senior officers would like to remedy that later, latter deficiency. So he's a little bit unpopular, the guy that wrote this book. 
with some with some people. Yet he demonstrates an amazing understanding of the art of war, as have only a small handful of military thinkers I have come across in my career. So he's talking about this guy, William William S. Lind. And here he goes into some details on William S. Lind and how he, how he came into contact with him. Back to the book. When I first heard Bill Lind speak, I must confess I resented a mere civilian expressing criticism of the way our beloved Corps did things. After all, he was not one of us. He had not shed blood with us in battle. He was not a brother. And I had strong suspicions that he would have difficulty passing the PFT, meaning the physical test. The physical. <laughs> so this guy, uh, Lind, not not exactly a high-level athlete. But what he said made sense. For the first time, I was personally hearing someone advocate a new an approach to war that was based on intellectual innovation rather than sheer material superiority. Mission-type orders, surfaces and gaps, Schwertpunkt, instead of the rigid formulas and checklists that we normally associate with our training and doctrine. It was a stimulating experience. Through Lynn's articulation, years of my own reading of military history began to make a lot more sense. But why all this from a civilian instead of a professional soldier? In fact, the entire movement for, for military reform is driven largely by civilian intellectuals, not military officers. One notable exception being retired Air Force Colonel John Boyd. When you think about it, this is not surprising. We have never institutionalized a system that encourages innovative ideas or, cri or criticism from subordinates. So there you go. It's the military. What do you say to your What do you say to your superior officer? I don't think that's a good plan. No, what they're told to do is support the plan. Proposing significant change is view, frequently viewed as criticism of superiors, since they are responsible for the way things are, and borders on disloyalty, if not insubordination. So it is not surprising that the movement for reform comes from outside the military establishment. And he goes on to say, B.H. Liddell Hart, which B.H. Liddell Hart was a guy that um, fought in World War I, a Brit that fought in World War I, battled the Somme. He got hit three times, uh, eventually was gassed, set out of the line, and almost his entire battalion was wiped out. And this guy eventually wrote uh, a book called Strategy. An indirect approach. And, and interesting, I pulled up one quote from him. Um, Often, the longest way around is the shortest way there. This is the indirect approach. So anyways, back to the book here on what B.H. Liddell Hart said. BL, uh, Hart once remarked that the only thing harder than getting a new idea into the military mind is to get an old one out. In 1925, when he was expounding such heterical theories as the indirect approach, the American General Service School's review of current military literature dismissed one of Liddell Hart's major works as negative value to the instructors at these schools. I expect Marine Corps schools to receive this publication with similar enthusiasm. But I cannot believe a professional military officer would not benefit by reading it. So, 
that's if you to 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 catch the setup of this book, he's saying, look, this is different than what we've been taught. This is different. And and by the way, this this book, I'm checking the dates right now. This came out in 1985, so there has been progress in this direction since then. But at the time that this came out, it was just it was viewed as almost insubordination to think this way. So let's jump into it right here. with the theory of maneuver warfare. So now we're getting to Lind himself writing. Maneuver warfare is not new. It probably dates from the first time a caveman surprised an enemy from behind instead of meeting him club to club. Sometimes the word maneuver is used as a synonym for movement, such, such as in references to fire and maneuver in small unit tactics. So that's you, you know, we have in, in the book Extreme Ownership, Cover and Move, and, and that's what we're talking about. We're talking about move. He's saying fire and maneuver is the same use of the word maneuver to mean move. Maneuver is organized movement of troops during combat operations to a new access and region for the purpose of taking an advantageous position relative to the enemy in order to, to deliver a decisive strike. So that, that's sort of the classical definition. But when used in the phrase maneuver warfare, maneuver means much more. Only recently has someone suggested a convincing answer of of what maneuver means. That man is a retired Air Force colonel and fighter pilot named John Boyd. Colonel Boyd's development of the theory of maneuver warfare began not with ground battles, but with a study of some mock air-to-air combat exercises conducted at Nellis Air Force Base in 1974 that led him back to the study of air-to-air combat during the Korean War. American aviators were very successful in that conflict. They achieved a 10-to-1 kill ratio over their North Korean and Chinese opponents. Colonel Boyd began his study with the question, how and why did we do so well? He noted in several tradition, he noted that in several traditional measures of aircraft performance, the principal communist fighter, the MiG-15, was superior to the American F-86. So you might think, oh, Americans always have the best technology. Not true. So, And, and Boyd will end up doing Boyd. We're going to hear quite a bit about him right now. But this guy was sort of a strategic genius in the Air Force. And a bunch of people on Twitter hit me and social media have always been saying, you got to do Boyd, you got to do Boyd. And, and I know i got to do Boyd at some point. And this is sort of a good introduction to Boyd. So... Here's the here's the difference between the MiG-15 and the American F-86. The MiG-15, it could climb and accelerate faster and it had better sustained turn rate. But in two less obvious measures of aircraft performance, the F-86 was much superior to the MiG. First, the pilot could see out much better. The F-86's bubble canopy gave its pilot very good outward vision while the MiG's fared fared canopy made it difficult to see out. Second, the F-86 had high-powered and highly effective hydraulic controls, and the MiG did not. This meant that while the MiG could do many individual actions, including turn, climb, and accelerate, better than the F-86, the F-86 could transition from one action to another much more quickly than the MiG. It was better in the transition. 
So for all you jujitsu players, when you start that scramble, you start that scramble, the, the F-86 is a better scrambler. Mm-hmm. Using these two superiorities, the American pilots developed a tactical approach that forced the MiG into a series of actions. Each, each time the action changed, the F-86 gained a time advantage because the F-86 pilot could see more quickly how the situation had changed and he could also make his aircraft shift more quickly to a new action. So he can see what's happening faster. Then once he sees it, which he saw faster, now he can make his adjustment faster. With each change, the MiG's actions became more inappropriate until they were so inappropriate that the MiG gave the F-86 a good firing opportunity. Often it appeared the MiG pilot realized what was happening to him and panicked, which made the American pilot's job all the easier. Later, Colonel Boyd began studying ground combat to see if there were any situations similar to that he had found in the air war over Korea. He found that in battles, campaigns, and wars like Vicksburg and France, a similar thing seemed to have happened. One side had presented the other with a sudden, unexpected change or a series of such changes to which it could not adjust in a timely manner. As a result, it was defeated. And it was generally defeated at small cost to the victor. Often, the losing side had been physically stronger than the winner. Just like the MiG-15 was, was physically faster, it, it didn't matter. And, often, the same sort of panic and paralysis the North Korean and Chinese pilots had shown seemed to occur. Colonel Boyd asked himself, what did all these cases have in common? His answer was what is now called the Boyd theory, which is the theory of maneuver warfare. The briefing Colonel Boyd gives to explain his theory, Patterns of Conflict, takes over five hours. So, so, so Colonel Boyd does give this brief, and it takes over five hours, or he did when he was, when he was alive. But at the cost of missing some of the subtleties and supporting historical evidence in the briefing, it can be summarized as follows. So here's a kind of a synopsis of the Boyd theory that uh, Lind is going to put together for us right now. Back to the book. Conflict can be seen as time-competitive observation, orientation, decision, action cycles. Each party to a conflict begins by observing. He observes himself, his physical surroundings, and his enemy. On the basis of his observation, he orients, that is to say, he makes a mental image or snapshot of his situation. On the basis of this orientation, he makes a decision. He puts the decision into effect, i.e., he acts. Then, because he assumes his action has changed the situation, he observes again and starts the process anew. His actions follow a cycle, sometimes called the Boyd cycle or OODA loop. And OODA is O-O-D-A, and that's observe, orient, decide, and act. If one side in a conflict can consistently go through the Boyd cycle faster than the other, it gains a tremendous advantage. By the time the slower side acts, the faster side is doing something different from what he observed and his action is inappropriate. With each cycle, the slower party's action is inappropriately is inappropriate by a larger time margin. Even though he desperately strives to do something that will work, each action is less useful than its predecessor. He falls further and further behind. 
ultimately, he ceases to be effective. And we clearly, I mean, th- this is obvious in combat. It's also obvious in, in jiu-jitsu. I mean, mm-hmm. very clear. When you're training, when you're rolling with somebody, if if they're not making adjustments fast enough, you just, it's two or three, two or three transitions, and you got them. You're on their back. Yep. The Boyd theory defines what is meant by the word maneuver in the term maneuver warfare. Maneuver means Boyd cycling. Boyd cycling the enemy, being consistently faster through however many OODA loops it takes until the enemy loses its cohesion, until he can no longer fight and is an effective, organized force. Sometimes a Boyd cycled enemy panics or becomes passive. This is an ideal outcome for the victor because a panicked passive enemy can be annihilated or captured at the lowest cost in friendly casualties. At other times, the outmaneuvered enemy may continue to fight as individuals or small units, but because he can no longer act effectively as a force, he is comparatively easy to destroy. So... Continuing on, if the object in maneuver warfare is to move through the OODA loops faster than the enemy, what do you need to do? How can you be consistently faster? Much of the, much of the rest of this book is an effort to address that question. But in terms of general theory, the following points are worth thinking about. 1. Only a decentralized military can have a fast OODA loop. If the observations must be passed up the chain of command, the orientation made and the decision taken at a high level and the command for action then transmitted back down the chain, the OODA loop is going to be slow. As the Israeli military historian Martin Van Creveld has observed, from Plato to NATO, the history of command and war consists of an endless quest for certainty. Certainty concerning the state and intention of the enemy's forces. Certainty concerning the manifold factors which together constitute the environment, from the weather and the terrain to the radioactivity and presence of chemical warfare agents. And, last but definitely not least, certainty concerning the state and activities of one's own forces. Historical commanders have always faced the choice between two basic ways of coping with uncertainty. One was to construct an army of automatons, following the orders of a single man, allowed to do only that which could be controlled. That's centralized command. The other, to design organizations and operations in such a way as to enable the former to carry out the latter without the need for continuous control. This second, the second of these methods has, that's decentralized command, the second of these methods has, by and large, proved more successful than the first. And the ongoing revolution in the technology of command notwithstanding, this is likely to remain so in the future, and indeed, so long as war itself exists. Very obvious stuff. And, and again, you know, in, in, in our book, uh, Extreme Ownership, we, that's one of the principles of, of combat decentralized command and, and this is what it is if you don't have decentralized command that uh, you have to report up the chain of command that takes time by the time it gets back down what the decision the decision gets made at the higher level then they pass it back down to you Stuff by the time changed. it gets to you it's already changed mm. and that's in a jiu-jitsu in a jiu-jitsu comparison if you 
wait, if you have to think about your moves, so you have instinctive moves, muscle memory. Mm-hmm. When somebody starts to pass your guard, you get the underhook. If you have to think about getting the underhook and you have to command your body to get the underhook, they already got the underhook on you. Yeah. So it's the same thing here. That's, that's decentralized command. Back to the book. Number two, maneuver warfare means you will not only accept confusion and disorder and operate successfully within it, through decentralization, you will also generate confusion and disorder. I love that. That's just awesome, right? It's not just saying, hey, look, things are going to get confusing, but I'm actually going to create the confusion. I'm going to make it happen. That's something, any, when you see the really good jiu-jitsu guys, I mean, Glover does that. Glover mm-hmm. creates confusion. He creates mayhem. He creates chaos in the, ga- in the, in the match. He wants yeah. the scramble to happen. He wants to go as long as possible. The reconnaissance pull tactics of the German Blitzkrieg were inherently disorderly. Now, this is something that's very contrary to what people think of, of the German military and even the German culture. German culture is very orderly. And here we say that the Blitzkrieg was inherently disorderly. Back to the book, higher headquarters could neither direct nor predict the exact path of the advance. But the multitude of German reconnaissance thrusts generated massive confusion among the French in 1940. Each was reported as a new attack. The Germans seemed to be everywhere. And the French, whose system demanded certainty before making any decisions, were paralyzed. It's, it's very interesting to think about that idea of we all want to have certainty in what's going to happen. And how in, in battle and in life, if you wait until you're 100% certain, you're probably going to be too late. Mm-hmm. Speaking of certainty, three, all patterns, recipes, and formulas are to be avoided. The enemy must not be able to predict your actions. If your tactics follow predictable patterns, the enemy can easily cut inside your OODA loop. If he can predict what you will do, he will be waiting for you. This is why it's so hard to tell someone how to do maneuver warfare. There is no formula you can learn. When someone says, cut all the bull about theory, just tell me what to do, you can't. Mm Mm-hmm. You can talk about how to think and about some useful techniques, but you can't give new formulas to replace the ones currently taught. Instead of a checklist or a cookbook, maneuver warfare requires commanders who can sense more than they can see, who understand the opponent's strengths and weaknesses and their own, and who can find the enemy's critical weaknesses in a specific situation. They must be able to create multiple threats and keep the enemy uncertain as to which one is real. They must be able to see their options in the situation before them, constantly create new options, and shift rapidly among options as the situation develops. General Herman Balk, one of the most successful practitioners of maneuver warfare, said, I'm against the school approach that says, in accordance with the ideas of the general staff, in this situation, you must do thus and such. On the contrary, you must proceed as dictated by the personalities involved and the particulars of the situation. So here you got a German, successful German general, and he's actually saying you react on, based not just on the situation of the, of the, on the ground, but on the personalities involved. Leadership is an art, my friend. 
Therefore, one of the first principles has to be there can be no fixed schemes. Every scheme, every pattern is wrong. No two situations are identical. That is why the study of military history can be extremely dangerous. Another principle that follows from is from this is never do the same thing twice. Even if something works well for you once, by the second time the enemy will have adapted. So you have to think up something new. No one thinks of becoming a great painter simply by imitating Michelangelo. Similarly, you can't become a great military leader just by imitating someone. It has to come from within. In the last analysis, military command is an art. One man can do it, and most will never learn. A little bit of maneuver warfare. And so, so at the, the way the book is broken up, this book is called Maneuver Warfare Handbook, it's, it goes into, uh, it breaks into another section which we're going to get to in a minute. But he kind of goes into a little bit, Lind go, now goes into a, a little bit talking about education and training. Back to the book. It is my great, and this is a quote, it is my great and constant hope that the Marine Corps will produce some outstanding man for this country. Such men are somewhere, and they may as well be in our classes as anywhere else. I do not want such a person to be hammered down by narrowness and dogmas, to have his mind cramped by compulsory details. It is my constant ambition to see the marine officers filled with ambition, initiative, and originality. And they can get these attributes only by liberality of thought, broad thought, that differs thought that differs from precedent and the compulsory imprint of others. And that is a long paragraph that says, free your mind. Free your mind. And I I love pointing this out because this is the Marine Corps. that, That quote is from the Commandant of Marine Corps Schools, Brigadier General J.C. Breckinridge, written in 1934. In 1934, he was saying, people, Marine Corps officers, don't go by the book. Don't obey what other people said. He wants them filled with ambition. That's pretty normal. But initiative and originality. He's telling, in order to be a good leader, you got to free your mind. Now, now, like I said, the book makes a transition from being the... the, uh, from being the introduction by by William Lind about maneuver warfare, and then it slides into another section, which is just about as big. And this this part is called Fundamentals of Tactics. And this section is written by Colonel Michael D. Wiley, United States Marine Corps, and he ran a course, a, a, a Fundamentals of Tactics course, and this is sort of the this is the this is the notes from the course when he would teach this course, the fundamentals of tactics. And the Colonel Wiley, kinda interesting, he went to the went to the he was an enlisted Marine, then he went to the Naval Academy, and he was Jim Webb's company commander in Vietnam Vietnam and, and Jim Webb is a fairly 
famous guy. He was a Navy Cross winner. He's a now a, he was a senator from Virginia. Um, he wrote a book called Fields of Fire. And then there's another great book called The Nightingale Song, which is it follows a couple five or so. Yeah, I think it's it's uh, Webb McCain, Oliver North. Uh, McFarland, I think, and uh, and John Poindexter. Anyways, very prominent graduates from the Naval Academy that all kind of stood out and were were connected throughout the book. So this guy, so Jim Webb is this is this kind of famous guy, and this guy that wrote this was was Jim Webb's company commander in Vietnam. So that's kind of it's a small world and things tie together. Mm-hmm. So now we get into these lectures that he wrote, and I don't mean to lecture anybody, but they, they're called lectures in this book. I would just call them free-throw information that we're going to learn from. And the first, the first section is called Surfaces and Gaps. The concept of surfaces and gaps is one of several concepts that bear on tactics. It is unimportant whether you refer to this concept as surfaces and gaps or soft spot tactics or simply the idea of pitting your strength against the enemy's weaknesses. That is what it is all about. Strength against weakness. Call it what you will. The term surfaces and gaps is derived from a German term, Flaken und Lückentaktik, which means simply the tactics of surfaces and gaps. The surfaces being the enemy's strong points, which we avoid. The gaps being the weak points that we want to go through. Now, Liddell Hart, who we talked about already today, called it the expanding torrent system tactic. He drew an analogy between attacking an attacking army and a torrent of water. If we watch a torrent bearing down on each successive bank of earth and dam in its path, we see that it first beats against the obstacle, feeling and testing it on all points. Eventually, it it finds a small crack. Through this crack, pour the first driplets of water and rush straight on. The pent-up water on each side is drawn towards the breach. It swirls through around the flanks of the breach, wearing away the earth on each side and so widening the gap. Simultaneously, the water behind pours straight through that breach between the side eddies which are wearing away the flanks. Directly it is passed through. It expands to widen once more the on-reach of the torrent, of the torrent. Thus, as the water pours through it in in an ever-increasing volume, the on-reach of the torrent swells to its original proportion, leaving in turn each crumbling obstacle behind it. Long paragraph. But that's how water gets through things. Finds the weak point and piles on. The idea of putting surfaces and gaps tactics into practice was first implemented by the German army in World War I. This is stuff that every, everybody should know, especially military people. In 1918, as they prepared for Ludendorff's spring offensive, the German army changed its offensive tactics. The Germans had found that they were being overpowered by the material available to the British and the French. The Americans were coming, and it was clear that Germany was going to lose if she did not do something differently. 
Because they did not have the option of matching the Allies' strength and material, the Germans decided that they would have to outthink them. That is, they would have to have better tactics. Germany did not succeed in winning the war. It was too late by this time. They were surrounded. The women and children were starving at home. It was simply too late for them to win. Yet, they made some tactical progress there at the last, at last in the spring of 1918. They inflicted terrible defeats on their enemies to the point that the Allied armies were seriously considering the prospect of giving up. At the tactical level, the Germans put their strength against weakness. They sought the gaps. Small assault groups called Sturmgruppen sought gaps in the enemy lines and attacked through them, assaulting with light machine guns, rifles, grenades, and flamethrowers, while heavy machine guns, direct and indirect weapons, including trench mortars, were used to suppress enemy strongpoints. But on the strategic level, the spring of 1918 offensive failed. Why? Because Ludendorff, on that level, put strength against strength. He was seek though he was seeking gaps, he was seeking gaps at the enemy's strong points. That's a very that's a great great information to have. So yeah, the guys on the ground were attacking the weak points, but the strategic picture, they were still attacking a strong area. So you might have found a little weakness in a wall, a little weakness in the wire, a little weakness in the trench, but they were attacking a, let's say, a 20-mile trench. That was overall was a strong area, whereas they should have looked for where the flanks are 100 miles away. Back to the book. The idea of putting strength against weakness was, of course, born way before 1918. Clausewitz writes about it in Chapter 9 and 10 of Book 7. In chapter 9, regarding defensive positions, he states, The attack cannot prevail against them. It has no means at its disposal to counteract their advantage. In practice, not all defensive positions are like this. If the attacker sees that he can get away without assaulting them, it would be stupid of him not to attempt it. It would be stupid of him to attempt it. It is a risky business to attack an able opponent in a good position. Same thing we heard from Sun Tzu. You don't attack the heavily defended positions. Back to the book. Employment of this concept of surfaces and gaps then gives us many advantages over what could be called slower moving forms of combat where strength is thrown against strength. Attacking through gaps, avoiding surfaces gives us an advantage of economy of force. If we are pitted strength against strength, assaulting enemy strong points, we are consuming our manpower as well as ammunition and supplies as we go along. If we go through the gaps, we are practicing economy of force. We are reaching our objective without using up our men. We are leaving the enemy behind. Because we are moving faster, we have the advantage of rapid exploitation. So when you attack, obviously, you attack weaknesses, you lose less, you lose less men. Now, this is important. The concept of surfaces and gaps demands leadership from the front as opposed to leadership from the rear. The commander must be where he can make swift decisions. He must be where the situation is developing. Obviously, leadership from the front had become a scarcity in World War I. J.F.C. Fuller, in his book Generalship, wrote, In the World War, nothing was more dreadful to witness than a chain of men 
starting with a battalion commander and ending with an army commander sitting in telephone boxes, improvised or actual, talking, 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 in place of leading, leading, leading. The result was unresponsive leadership and slow reactions. We actually talked about this on the last podcast when Leif was talking about being in an assault force and being in the assault train, which is 20 guys, 15 or 20 guys, and he was standing always at the end of the train because that's where he was told he was supposed to be. And he didn't know what was going on in the front, so he couldn't help. He couldn't make any decisions. If someone was gonna, If he needed to make a decision, well, he couldn't even make a decision because he didn't know what was going on up there. But if someone said, hey, we need a decision from the boss, they had to pass that word all the way back. Mm-hmm. Not good. So you've got to lead from the front with decentralized command and be far enough. The front. I don't want to make it sound that simple. You've got to be, it's the same thing we talked about with Leif. You've got to be far enough forward that you can understand what's happening up there. And obviously, but you don't want to be the guy that's doing the shooting because then you've gone too far forward to actually be detached and make decisions. Certainly, combat is not going to be that simple. The gap then might be any undefended point or any weakly defended point. It may be any enemy vulnerability. It might be the enemy's flanks. The term flank itself needs some elaboration. Think of it as a relative thing. John Boyd defines a flank as that aspect, that aspect toward which a force is not devoting its primary attention. In other words, in fluid warfare, what is one moment the enemy's flank Might the next moment be the enemy's front? It depends on how he is directing his attention. A gap for the infantry could be an enemy missile site manned by troops who are not combat-oriented. The missile site might be a surface if you are flying on an airplane, but a gap if you are a light infantryman who has gotten inside enemy lines. So... Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. So if if you've got a surface-to-air missile launcher and it it has a radar radar on it and it can track aircraft coming in and if you're a, a fighter aircraft you don't want to stay away you want to stay away from that thing because mm-hmm. it'll get you locked on radar and it's going to fire a heat-seeking missile at you and kill you mm-hmm. so for them it's a surface it's a strong point for an aircraft it's a strong point but for a ground troop they don't put you know the highest level troops guarding these things because they're in the rear a little bit right. they put like kind of you know some what they call them here uh they're manned by troops who are not combat oriented. Right. So that means it's a softer target. Yeah, yeah. Back to the book. Let us say we are unsuccessful in finding any gaps. We may have to create gaps, and there are ways of doing this. So then they talk about the ways you can do it. You can do it through firepower by dropping bombs, by suppression, by assault, all those different ways. To create gaps with with you know using direct fire to soften up targets, and then I, then I like these tactics a little bit better. Another way of creating gaps is through supporting attacks. By attacking one point along the line, we may divert the enemy from another point, and by drawing him off, create a gap. Again, this is in linear terms for instructional purposes for simplicity, but do not get a linear mindset. Sometimes a less costly way of creating a gap is through deception, by causing the enemy to think that we will attack at one point, thereby enticing him to draw his forces off from another point. And when we attack that point where he 
has weakened himself. But what do we do about surfaces? That is strong points. Sometimes they are best bypassed. Once the enemy has been bypassed, his strong point may be cut off from its support. And in that way, his strong point eventually withers away and becomes a weak point, which we can attack later. You know, we talk a lot in here about not attacking people's defensible positions. And this is just classic, another way of saying that. You know, so we, we talk about people with got the ego, the big ego, and how you don't want to confront that ego. Mm-hmm. Well, if you can bypass the ego, eventually the ego doesn't become a factor anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing when you're doing ground combat. Back to the book. There are certain problems presented by the concept of surfaces and gaps, especially to commanders who are used to slow-moving forms of combat. One is that the commander will not always know where all his people are. In the Marine Corps, we have become used to being accountable at all times for knowing exactly where every man is. In this faster-moving form of combat, to do so would be impossible. Your subordinates are finding the gaps and exploiting them. So you've got, if you're a control freak, you're not going to be able to pull this off. Because I'm saying, well, Echo, where are you? Echo, where are you? Echo, where are you? No, Echo's out there. He's working. He's finding some gaps to get through. Not know exactly where he is. Another problem is that artillery and air might not be, may not be controlled as closely as is possible in slowing, slower moving forms of combat. So you start to deal with the problems of, of air support. And artillery is a little trickier to use because you have people moving around the battlefield and you're not sure where everyone is. And that makes it very difficult because you obviously don't want to drop bombs on your own people. Another problem associated with the concept of surfaces and gaps is that as we penetrate deeply, often on narrow fronts, our flanks become exposed. There are, however, compensating factors again related to speed. We are moving quickly. The enemy is always off balance. Remember the old adage, there is security in speed. So, in other words, as you penetrate into a into a zone, you're going to be exposed a little bit. But if you're moving fast, you can deal with that exposure. Critics of these faster-moving forms of combat characterized by initiative at the low level fear that they will lead groups to groups of men moving willy-nilly about the battlefield and that commanders will lose control. So people say, oh, you know, if I give so much so much initiative at the low level, I'm going to lose control of it. And people are going to be running around like chickens with their heads cut off. This need not be so. If the concept of surfaces and gaps is employed properly, it will not be so. That is why we have control measures. The boundary, the limit of advance, the phase line can still be used. It must be remembered that these control measures should serve their function, but not be rigid lines that cannot be changed or ignored when the situation changes. They should be kept to a minimum and must always be flexible. The tactics must never follow the control measures. On the contrary, the control measures must follow the tactics. And the tactics must always be based on the enemy. Other concepts that will be discussed in the chapters ahead, especially that of the main effort, gives us meaning gives us means of keeping control over our troops and preventing a situation where they can be said to be moving willy-nilly about the battlefield. So decentralized command, it it is challenging. And if you don't do it right, you will have chaos. 
So now we get into the next section. And it does say lecture again, but again, I'm not here to lecture anybody. I don't think I, I don't think I can pull that off. The concept. This one. This section is called mission tactics. The concept of mission tactics, like surfaces and gaps, must always be at work in battle. The name is the name is derived from the German Auftragstaktik, which means literally mission tactics. It is no accident that the name includes the word tactics, assigning a mission and depending on subordinates to carry it out constitutes the tactic. To allow the subordinate to decide on his own initiative what to do is the means of getting the most appropriate decisions made on the spot and acted on more rapidly than the enemy can respond to your actions. Got to get your subordinate leadership to lead. You want them to lead. This is the account of Prince Frederick Charles, who is giving a ton lashing to one of his majors for committing a tactical blunder. In defense of his action, the major explained that he was only following orders. In the Prussian army, the major reminded the prince, an order from a senior officer was tantamount to an order from the king. The prince was unimpressed. His reply to the major was, the king made you a major because he thought you were smart enough to know when not to obey orders. And that is the essence of mission tactics. The subordinate decides what to do, even if, even if it means that the order issued by his senior now should be changed or adjusted. The mission assigned is sacred. The mission is the output that the commander wants. That does not change. But how that output is to be achieved may change. And it is up to the intelligent subordinate to decide whether or not it has total freedom for the subordinate leadership to figure out how they want to make this happen. They know what they need to get done, but they they have the freedom to figure out how they're going to make it happen. Back to the book. There is a classic example used time and time again in introducing the student to mission tactics. It is simple and of value, so it will be used again here. The subordinate is giving the mission of getting his unit across the river. Getting his unit across the river is the output the senior desires. The route that he has been given crosses the nearest bridge. The junior commander arrives at the site to find that the bridge has been destroyed. He does not stop. He does not wait for new orders. He does not request permission to change his route. He goes to the nearest ford several kilometers distance, and he crosses there. He informs the senior, of course, as soon as he can, but he does not wait. Remember, mission orders are necessary to give the tempo of operations the rapidity that it must have if we are to keep the enemy off balance. So that's a very simple example. I tell Echo, hey, I need your, I need your troops to cross that river. Go across that bridge. You get there. The bridge is out. You're like, no, oh, I'm still going to get across the river. Here's, mm-hmm. Let's find another place we can go across or let's make it happen. Mm-hmm. And you're going to make it happen not going to bother me. You're not going to call me back. You know what I mean? Hey, the bridge is out. What do you want me to do? Now, the, something that this is a little bit, this is a little bit simplified because the reality is if you're going to start moving kilometers away from where I anticipated you being, you need to tell me that you're moving. You need to tell me because I might have other 
friendly units in the area that might ex- don't expect you. I might have be dropping bombs in that area. So this is this is actually leaving out some critical coordination that does have to happen. But the initiative to make it happen should happen. Yeah, it seems like you um, it, like in the in the process of that decentralized command, the person carrying out the order is it's kind of to his discretion how much he's going to deviate when something changes. Like he can't, he's of course he's going to deviate. He's going to make those adjustments, but you don't want to deviate too much. Right. And, and honestly, if I was to give you the directions, Hey echo, I need you going across. I need you across the river. I would literally give you some parameters to work within. I'd oh, say, yeah, don't yeah. go, f- don't go further South than this area, than this road. And don't mm-hmm. go further North than this. You can do whatever you want inside of here. So right. now you can do, you can do whatever you want inside that box. Yeah, and how you always talk about you'll you'll say like why you're going across yep. the river as yep. well. Yep. So, and for speaking of why, and here's another example of mission orders. This is an actual example. Seize control of Route Six west of the Muddy River in order to destroy enemy forces attempting to escape from Company Bravo's zone of action. So. It's telling you the why. That's what the in order to is. Notice in the mission order, the phrase in order to. That is a very important phrase and usually ought to go in the mission order. There's no rule that every mission order contain the phrase in order to. If you were told attack the enemy company that you see in front of you, it would probably be highly superfluous to tell you why. They are there. They are a threat. Why waste the breath? But usually, your mission order will have the ability to endure time better if you explain to the subordinate why he is carrying the mission out. So you called this echo. Turned into a little tactical genius over there, aren't you? In order to, this gives the order the quality that Eric von Manstein called long-term. It can endure the test of time. Your commander can lose communication with you, yet you can still carry out his intent because you know what he wanted, and you can continue to act within his intent for a long time without checking back. Understanding the why, as briefed by Lieutenant Colonel Echo Charles. Fixed rules are not appropriate in instructing how to, ass- how to assign missions. Too often, students reject good ideas about tactics because they cannot get their thoughts to fit the format of the operation order that is being demanded. The important thing is that the mission be clear. Compared to clarity, format is of little or no consequence. And this is... We talk about it in extreme ownership, the, these massive PowerPoint briefs that, I mean, hundreds, literally, you know, 100, 150 slides to try and make the, to, to try and brief a mission. When, and, and the leaders would waste so much time trying to put these briefs together, and, and they, would, they wouldn't do the planning that they're supposed to be doing. They wouldn't be thinking. Mm. They'd be building PowerPoint slides. Right. And I just had to get these guys to think. And stop stop working on the PowerPoint. Stop trying to match your font. Yeah, stop yeah. trying to equalize the hues on each slide to make it look pretty. No, don't care. What I want you to do is think, and I want cl- clarity of mission is the most important thing. As a matter of fact, I had one guy who was running training, and, and a guy says to me, it's one of, the, one of the task unit commanders, and he says, hey, you know, what is it? What is it that you're looking for in the brief? And he's, you know, trying to figure out how many slides do I want to see and what format do I want to see. And I said, what I want for the brief is that your men understand the operation. Boom. 
Back to the book. The subordinate receiving that order must be more talented. Amateur troops, awkward, clumsy, untrained troops cannot be expected to carry out mission orders. Why? Because as a result of their lack of experience, they must be told what to do. Only the professional experienced leader can know what to do without being told what to do. Because we in the Marine Corps set our standards high, we expect that our subordinates will train until they can perform under mission orders. So just, I don't know if I made this clear or if I breezed over this part. Mission orders is exactly what we're talking about when it comes to, hey, just tell the person, this is what I need done. And this is why I want it done. You figure it out. As opposed to telling them exactly what you want them to do. Commander's intent. Yes, indeed, commander's intent. Burdens of responsibility increase on both sides. On the part of the senior commander, so when you're doing mission orders, the burden of responsibility increases on the part of the senior commander and on the part of the subordinate. Look first at the senior commander. Operating with mission orders, his orders must be perfectly clear. The onus is on the senior to define to the junior what must be accomplished without telling him how to do it. The onus is not on the junior to ferret out what his commander wants. The senior must state what he wants. Otherwise, he should not expect to get it. Now, I actually, when I, when I teach people this, I tell them that the onus is on the junior. And if, if I tell you to do something and you don't understand why you're doing it and you don't understand what my intent is and you still go in the field and try and do it, I blame you. I mean, it's my fault too, but we're both taking ownership. Might even say we're taking extreme ownership of the situation, but really, if your boss isn't telling you why you're why you're do, why they're telling you to do something, you just raise your hand and ask, "Hey, boss, what's your objective here? What's your overall intent? What's the commander's intent?" Because I want to make sure if I lose communications with you, I can continue to execute towards your desired end state. Mm-hmm. That's what we're looking for. An additional burden of responsibility on the senior is that he must train his subordinates and his unit to operate as a team. They are not going to be able to perform mission orders without training. Another new burden of responsibility is that he must expect his subordinates to make mistakes. He may not expect zero defects. Wars are won by people, not machines. People make mistakes. If people are more afraid of making mistakes than they are of exercising initiative now and then, they will not take risks and they will not exercise initiative. Furthermore, they will not win in war. Perhaps the most important new responsibility that is placed on the commander who gives mission orders is that he must trust his subordinates. If trust breaks down, the whole system breaks down. So, people ask me about trust from time to time and it's absolutely and I use I talk about relationships the R word and that's what that's what that's what it is and Leif and I talked about the other day on the podcast is that just building trust how the one of the best ways to build trust is I give it Mm. I give it and so that's what goes back and forth and in the military you do that when you're in the training environment when there's no risk or very very tiny risk of life and limb there's no strategic lift you're not your risk you're not going to lose the war so i'm going to let you run with stuff i want you to learn i want you to take risks and if you fail if you screw something up i don't try and fire you we try and learn from it and that encourages you to take initiative and keep getting after it (laughs) now the the we're moving to the next section 
which is called the main effort. The commander, in making his plan, must determine what and where his main effort is in every operation, whether it be offensive, defensive, or withdrawal. This main effort should be specified in the operation order. It should always be clearly stated in paragraph 3A, the concept of operation. There can only be one main effort. When you start giving two or three or a three-part main effort, you'd better look back at it because the chances are you, do, you have not made up your mind what you are trying to do. So if you're trying to plan a mission, you, you're telling you're telling people there's three main things we're trying to get done. No, wrong. Yep. There should be one. Yep. Yeah, in message conveyance. Um, actually, I think it's in newspaper writing. They call it burying the lead. Mm-hmm. So like your main story has to, you know, you can't have three main stories in one article. Got it. Because and you know one story is going to have cool details. Right. Right. But you start. Spending a bunch of time on these cool details, they call that burying the lead. Ah. It's a bad deal. When you so don't that. do that don't in do the that. newspaper business, and don't do that on the battlefield. <laughs> Every unit commander down to the company commander will always assign a main effort, and sometimes even a platoon commander should. The entire command must be aware of what and where the main effort is. The commander can change the main effort at any time. This is what gives the operation its fluidity. And, and this is one of the pretty common issues that we run it, ran into it when I was running training, run into it now in the business world where you work with a company and they're not, they're not assigning a main effort. They're concentrating on 14 different things at the same time. They don't mm-hmm. prioritize and execute because this is another form of prioritize and execute. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem because if you're trying to do 14 things at once, you're going to not accomplish any of them. Mm -hmm. The German word for main effort is Schwertpunkt. Any time in your readings, when you see that, and often you will see it written in italics, the German word Schwertpunkt, take note because it is one of the most important underlying concepts in everything the Germans do. Make the main effort where the enemy least expects you. Make the enemy, make the main effort where the enemy is weak. Be prepared to be surprised. So let's go. I got. I got to stop right there. It's interesting, you know, when you see the big fortified area of the enemy, mm-hmm. you say, "Okay, we're gonna we we better we better attack that hard." No, wrong answer. Mm-hmm. That's a surface. We're looking for gaps. Mm-hmm. So don't make the main effort the the strong point. Make it the weak point. Back to the book. Be pre- be prepared to be surprised. Be leery of the council. Do not ever be surprised. In war, you will be surprised. The task is to learn to deal with surprise. If what you thought would be an enemy weakness becomes the enemy's strength, you should not be disrupted. If your tactics are fluid, you can deal with surprise. You will shift your main effort to enemy weakness and go on through. That is how the main effort works in the offense. Fluidity. Remember, we've been hearing a lot about in the Vietnam War, the, the Viet Cong were too rigid. They would just try their plan, mm. didn't have the fluidity. The main effort should be directed against enemy weakness, not enemy strength. 
Here you see the interconnection between the concepts, the con connection between the concept of the main effort and the concept of surfaces and gaps. All the concepts work together at the same time. The main effort cannot be understood in isolation from surfaces and gaps because it is directed against enemy weakness. And another another one of the four laws of combat that we talk about in the book Extreme Ownership is simplicity. Mm. Simple. Back to the book. Even the principle of simplicity can be recognized in the concept of the main effort. Instead of trying to do ten different things, we are focusing on one. There will be many other efforts going on at the same time, but all in some way directed at making the main effort succeed. So what do you gain from this main effort? You gain direction. You, you gain fluidity. You gain speed. And you prevent dissipating your efforts all over the battlefield. The way the Poles did when the Germans invaded Poland. They tried to defend their entire 800 mile front. There was no main effort. And by trying to be strong everywhere, they were in fact strong nowhere. This trying to cover all the bases is a common error in the amateur commander's plan. It is a symptom of avoidance of decision making. Avoidance of decision making. So if you're not saying, hey, here's what we're going to focus on, you're, you're just... Well, I'm going to wait. I don't want to decide yet. Oh, I'm not ready to commit. By establishing a main effort, you make a clear decision. You obviate the necessity for junior officers to keep asking for guidance. If they know their commander's main effort, they can continue to operate even though communications may be cut. And they can continue to operate at a high tempo because they need not keep checking back for new orders. And here we get to uh, another something you might recognize from, from our book, Extreme Ownership. When the commander has made this decision, he has done something very necessary. He has done something very ethical. He has assumed and taken responsibility. For what will happen if the battle goes awry? He cannot blame his subordinates. He can only blame himself. It was he who decided what was to be done and designated a main effort in order to do it. Therefore, it takes courage and moral character to, to select a main effort. That is why the weak commander and the amateur so often fail to do this. In fact, the weak commander will actively avoid choosing a main effort. It is very convenient for the commander weak in character to avoid selecting the main effort because if the battle goes unfavorably, he can blame someone else for the mistake. The commander who has taken the stand and selected his own main effort cannot do this. Therefore, in a sense, the main effort is a moral commitment. Taking some ownership by selecting the main effort. And you gotta dig that. <laughs> the next concept, and again, you know, I'm, I'm cruising through this book like I always do, only reading... I don't know, probably a very small percentage of it, 15%. And there's a ton in here. And it actually has some very cool uh, like exercises where it gives you a scenario that's happening and you go through and you figure out what you would do and it gives you a good solution. So it's, got, it's, got, it's, it's a great book to look at. 
the next lecture is called the concept of the objective. According to the chair, according to Joint Chiefs of Staff Publication Number One, Dictionary of Military and Associated Terms, the objective is the physical object of the action taken, a definite tactical feature, seizure, and or holding of which is essential to the commander's plan. That definition is clear enough. Basil Liddell Hart would have disagreed with the JCS definition. At one point in his writings, Liddell Hart stated, The only real objective is the enemy. Liddell Hart's statement is also quite clear and understandable, especially when we realize that whether we are attacking or defending, the problem is always the enemy. Once the enemy is taken out of the action, defending and attacking are no longer necessary. Now, the, 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 I guess the controversy here, if we could call it that, is the objective not being a specific piece of terrain. It's the, the objective is the enemy. But that being said, the terrain, of course, is extremely important. We must use it to gain advantage. But the object of the attack is the enemy. The objective must be to take the enemy out of action, to destroy him, to disarm him. We cannot do that simply by seizing a piece of terrain and holding it. We must be prepared to move continually wherever necessary to confuse and disrupt him through a combination of fire and movement. When the term objective appears, it means an aiming point, that towards which we direct our efforts in order to best use the terrain to accomplish our final goal, the destruction of the enemy. The ability to wisely select an objective is the mark of a good commander. The inability is the mark of an amateur, and history is replete with examples of poorly selected objectives. There were hills fought for bravely by Marines in Vietnam after they ceased being of any tactical value. Lives were thrown away for meaningless terrain, terrain that did not meet either of the two main criteria for selecting an objective. The two main criteria are, one, that, is lo that it be useful to you, or two, dear to your enemy. If it is neither one of these it is probably not worth the life of a single Marine. Any good commander will, therefore, select terrain that is useful to him. The great commander will have the ability to select terrain that is dear to the enemy. And the final concept is the concept of the reserve. General J.F.C. Fuller of the British Army, the original author of the nine principles of war that the U.S. Army was to adopt in the 1920s, once stated that of all the principles he developed, the most important was economy of force. He reasoned that whichever side still had forces left after the other sides had been committed was bound to win. Napoleon seems to have had similar thoughts when he observed that whoever still had his reserve remaining after his enemy had committed his reserve would win the battle. And here's another uh, quote in here from Napoleon that I think they're talking about committing and it talks about your mindset on the battlefield. 
from Napoleon. If I appear to be always ready to reply to everything, it is because before undertaking anything, I have meditated for a long time. I have foreseen what might happen. It is not a spirit which suddenly reveals to me what I have to say or do in a circumstances in a circumstance unexpected by others. It is a reflection, a meditation. So Napoleon he was going to have these quick reactions and everyone says, wow, he must have just had this incredible, you know, he's calling a spirit that just comes to him and says, hey, move these guys over here. Hey, assault that flank. No, he already thought through this thing for hours. Mm. And he said, oh, if they do this, I'm going to do that. If they come over here, I'm going to be ready over here. Mm. Preparation. What Napoleon was saying was that thorough thought in advance prepared him to make split-second decisions when the situation suddenly changed. Preparation. Preparation is key. Now, that wraps up the book, and I hope that it provides some reminders and some insight to people, not only to the warfighters out on the battlefield, but as I said in the beginning, I hope it provides some details into dealing with humans, with people and problems in the business world, in leadership positions, on that jujitsu mat, in life. Whatever you're doing or whatever you're trying to get done, think of how you can use maneuver warfare to make it happen and I guess we can uh, go over to some some questions from the interwebs and I guess before we go to the interwebs maybe you could tell us about the interwebs and what we can do to support support by being on the interwebs if you're on the interwebs and you're in the mood to support this podcast and or yourself with supplementation go to onit.com slash jocko get on it supplements they're the best ones i like that idea yeah krill yeah, oil that's a good idea krill oil for sure for your joints Getting and alpha brain some of that alpha brainy yeah alpha some brainy. shroom tech sport mode yeah, Shroom Tech Sport, if you're into performance, physical activity performance. If you feel you need a little turbo boost. Yeah. Yeah, it was funny. Remember, um, the Shroom Tech. Tim Kennedy put it in like real real good terms, in my opinion, when he, he was like, oh, uh, yeah, when I took the Shroom Tech, it's kind of like, because, okay, so you don't want to get confused and be like, hey, I'm going to take the Shroom Tech and it's like a like a caffeine boost or mm-hmm. something. You know, you don't, because it's not that. It's not. So it's, and he put it in, in these terms where he's like, you know, he, you go a few rounds, you go five, six, seven, eight, you know, however many rounds and everyone's like real poop. But then you're kind of like, I could go a few more rounds. And really that is that exactly is, how it that is. is the shroom tech. Or when you're hitting towards the end of the round or whatever, it's like you, you feel solid, you know, it just, you know, I guess apparently it, what it does is it helps you utilize your oxygen consumption. Yeah. And you'll on feel a it on the workout. I mean, obviously you're talking about jujitsu, yeah. which for those people that don't train jujitsu, which you should, but if you don't. Well, you should, <laughs> but you're yeah. also going to keep working out and you have the, you know, you 
so, sort of a metabolic conditioning type type yeah. workout situation going on. Remember how I was telling you I did my Metcom metabolic conditioning after I, I yes. do like normal lifting? So I've actually been doing the reverse of that lately. Really? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I would advise Because I'm one. super warmed up. I f- I'm dripping yeah. with sweat. Yeah. It's and, I just, and I feel really good. And right. then I figure maybe the opposite will happen. Because we both know if you go with your, with your strength movements first, you take a little bit off your Metcon strength, right? Yeah. If, if you do... And so that way when you do... The Metcon fresh, you feel like Superman, right? Because you yeah. blasted your muscles mm-hmm. out. So I've been doing the reverse, though, where I'm doing the Metcon type first, mm-hmm. and then I just breathe it out, and then I get into the heavy stuff. Yeah, and I dig it. All, the only reason I say I dig it, because you're savage like that, but consider, because those are two, well, it depends, it depends on what, what kind of lifting you're doing. Yeah. So let's say if no, well, if you're lifting like for strength or, or you know, muscle growth or whatever, you should do that first because the results you seek are in line with you having full energy, you lifting. I, I, I agree with you. And, I actually think you're correct. And the Metcon isn't. The results of the Metcon is for you to recover from conditioning. So you, it's yeah, muscular it's conditioning. conditioning. Yeah. So if you're tired going in, that's more conditioning you have to recover from, better exercise. Yeah. So, it, so it essentially, but hey, if you want to reverse it, give your you, body some some. Some shock, stuff to shock yeah, and all. some stuff it's, to deal it's with. It's funny because I I completely agree with you, and I've only been doing this for a, f- a couple months. And I, fr- you know what it was, you know what it was. One day I was I was in there, I did like a metcon, I was pretty strong, I was feeling good. <laughs> sure. And then I got done. I said I need a little bit more. So I, I was like I'm just gonna move some, you know, right, do right. some something heavy. Get my lift on. And when I when I went heavy. I was like, man, that feels good. You right. know, I'm all yep. loose, I'm all warm. Mm-hmm. And so now I've just kind of started doing it a little bit. Yeah, and if you get used to that, then it, it'll start to be more and more beneficial. I used to I used to run on the treadmill. I used to do like three and a half miles, sometimes four miles, and then lift mm-hmm. just because I didn't have time. And, and I, every time I lift, I would never feel like running the you know the mile <laughs> afterwards. I do it on a treadmill. And so, I, mm-hmm. so I'd be like, you know what, I'm going to get the, the running out of the way, then I'm going to lift. Yeah. And then I was like, dang, lifting is, is kind of harder, but I'd way rather endure this discomfort when I'm lifting than when I'm running on the treadmill. Mm-hmm. But I did that for months and months and months. And then one day I didn't run. I was like, it was weird. I was like stiff. Yeah. So, so you kind of get, get used, used to, to it. That, but yeah. e- either way, I mean, well, my original point is well, I, w- I do the Met now. I do the Metcon after I lift. Doing the Metcon after that, you lift. That has been my standard for so long. Right, but you know how you're saying do the Metcon before you lift or, or you're just doing the Metcon that day. It's easier. Yeah, like, because you don't, I, you're not as tired yeah, from lifting. Yeah, yeah. But um, anyway, my my original point was the shroom tech. So if you're doing that kind of thing after you lift, when you're going into the metcon, you're gonna feel way better. You want to hear something cool? So a lot of times people ask me, "What is your workout?" Right? They want to know reps, sets, mm-hmm. weights. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's cool, of course. Sure. Um, and I haven't I haven't put it out there for. Well, I'm, 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 I got a book. I'm putting together a book. Like it's an e-book kind of thing? Actually, it's not going to be an e-book. It's going to be what a real it? book. Hard, yeah. Hardcore. Yeah, like a real legit book. <laughs> um, which means it's going to take a little more time, but I'd rather do it and do it right. But what's interesting is this is what's so cool. So people that people that listen to the podcast and ask it have been applying the basic principles because I have never put, I haven't put out, I don't think I've put out a single workout. I, also, people say, what do you actually eat? Mm. Right? They want to know what I had for breakfast, lunch, dinner, what I had for snacks, whatever. 
Yeah. All I say is like, oh, you know, I eat mostly, you know, I, I, I low, very low carbs. I eat a lot of meat. I eat a lot of protein. I eat a lot of fat. Okay. What do you do for workouts? I get up early in the morning. I hit it hard. You know, am I doing squats? I'm doing pull-ups. I'm doing just basic stuff, right? And I've put mm-hmm. those basic principles out there. Well, there's people, troopers, that have been applying these basic principles, and they're making incredible progress in their lives. They're getting stronger. They're getting leaner. Mm-hmm. They're getting in better shape. So it's actually proven. Because I remember you and I talked about this a long time ago. I said, listen, it's more about the commander's intent, right? The, the working now is about the commander's intent. It's not about I'm going to tell you how many reps and sets to do. I'm going to tell you what you want to make happen. Right. I'm going to tell you okay. where you want what where you want to be at the end of this workout. Right. Physically and mentally. <laughs> and yeah. and people have been taking that. And I mean all kinds of people. Hey, I've lost 28 pounds. I've lost 42 pounds just from applying the basic principles that I and and so those will be consolidated in the book mm-hmm. so that people can follow them and there'll be some other good stuff in the book too basic philosophy mm-hmm. of philosophy yeah guess yeah what that is well you, that was kind of a tangent on on it wasn't it well I and rightly so I think uh, rightly the, so I think yes, so indeed. it's, it's think consistent right which which actually kind of brings me to my point the consistency oh. is probably the most overlooked fact even though people know yeah you got to be consistent we got to but that's kind of everything because everything else is variable like you yeah. can Consistency there's a is king. there's a billion different workouts. Wait, by you consistency, can do. do you mean doing uh, the same thing, or you just mean doing it every day, getting in the there grind. and doing it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, not skipping days, yeah. weeks. You know, getting off the horse. You know that kind of stuff. There's a million different workouts you can do that will give you results, and there's a yep. million different results that you can you can kind of strive for and get yep. them. There's just so many. Same thing with diet. Like you can, you know, you, people have their rigid diet philosophy, but the fact is that many different diets work. Yeah, I mean, there's some basic principles. You don't eat a bunch of sugar. You don't eat a bunch of fast food. You don't, you know, the obvious things to avoid, and you can get results with many kinds of diets. And, and I would go one step further. What you're talking about is consistency mm. in in order to have consistency, that requires the discipline. discipline. <laughs> it does require the discipline. So that's so the key true. factor. Yep. That is the key factor. And when people apply the discipline to their lives, boom. Right. Now everything becomes consistent. And that's we everything. Got progress. Yep. yep. So yep. the books can come and the books can talk about that. <laughs> there you go. Boom. But All yeah, right. man. How else, how else can that's we support good. the podcast? Uh, if you, before you do your Amazon shopping, mm-hmm. um, go to jockopodcast.com or, or one of the websites, Jocko Store. Dot com. Click on the Amazon link and do your shopping. You can support passively, and you can install that little tool, or you can just make it your your. Uh, I put it in my my what's that called up at the top? The there? bookmarks. The bookmarks. Yeah, yeah. So when I click on Amazon, it's already yeah, the Jocko it's, Amazon. Yeah, it's thing. not like yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what yeah. I, I. Yeah. We go crazy with Amazon. Man, Amazon's how can you not? Awesome. Dang. Yeah. So awesome. And don't call it a little tool. It's not a little tool. Oh, that's right. The trooper tool, it's a big deal. It's pretty little. <laughs> Technically, it's really. He's just, anyway, the trooper tool that Brady made. Little tool. Thanks for that, by the way. Deal. Again, I like great, that. yeah, little, small tool, simple. Um, You go and you can go on the websites and get it. It's called the Jock Podcast Trooper 
tool, Chrome extension. What it all it does, it makes it easy to support podcasts when you do your Amazon shopping, so you don't have to remember that. And it, you know, basically you click on it. Do you want this tool? Click yes. Boom. It's on your little browser there. It automatically directs you to our our affiliate link, which right then you support that way. And, and it's kind of cool little icon if you can, if you um. Yeah, when you do it, this little icon there, it makes it official. Mm. But you can hide the icon if you don't want it. Just hide it. If you it don't goes want away. it. If you don't want it. And I understand if you, if you don't. Yeah, it's Jocko's face. But anyway, yeah, the Trooper tool, that's, that's a good one. That's a good, easy easy way. Because remembering to go to the website and click through before you do. You know how like you're. Yeah, I know. You know, you're going in there. Because you want that thing now. Yeah, you know, you just <laughs> like Amazon or it's, you know. So. I want this thing. I want that duct tape now. Yep, yep. Same day. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. So anyway, now you got the Trooper tool. Boom. Easy, easy. Um, also, all, obviously by su- subscribing to the podcast if you haven't already. That one's, that's, that one's a good way to support. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the Jocko store. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. I think if you like shirts that say discipline equals freedom. Well, most people do have to wear shirts so right. at some juncture during the day. Sure. You can't get into the restaurant without a t-shirt. <laughs> on Kauai, you can. Sometimes. Except in Hawaii. But yeah, there's some shirts on there. If you like them, get a shirt. That's a good way to support. Or a bumper sticker. Elections coming up. Jocko 2016. <laughs> yeah. I saw a car with Jocko 2016 on it. Did you know the person? Yesterday. Yeah. Was it in San Diego? Yeah, Chris Martin. Oh, okay, But still, well. <laughs> it's cool to see. You know, when yeah, you pull yeah, up, yeah. you're like, hey, oh, that's Chris Martin's yeah, yeah, car. Yeah. Anyway, it, it looked cool. Uh, he has a nice car, too, by the way. So mm. it looked extra cool. You know, it was like extra official. Yeah. We got some real... Yeah, supporter out there yeah yeah that's what it felt like um also subscribe to the youtube channel and you posted your uh, first yeah i'm sorry well, I'm, starting, I'm starting to put it that's a it's a deleted scene it's not oh, an yeah, sorry, 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 sorry. there's a difference man keep me tight on those deleted scene if you want to hear echo charles talking about Alien abduction. No, it's my kids' you book. You know how many podcasts there are about alien abduction? There's a lot of podcasts uh, about it. Is that a subcategory? Because now we're going to fit in that subcategory. <laughs> Leadership, war, <laughs> darkness, alien, alien abduction. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe that's, that's why it's an outtake. That was more like an example underlying kind of thing. It was more about my children's book idea. Okay. We're good. We're good. Anyway, those are the ways. Yep. On dot com slash Jocko, that's a good one. Like I said, for the supplements, ten percent off. I forgot to mention that if you don't know. Ten percent off the supplements. Yeah. Good. I guess with that, let's get down to the questions from the troopers on the interwebs. Getting a lot of questions lately. And I like it. I like it too. First question. Jocko. If you were coaching McGregor for those who don't know, that's Conor McGregor, UFC fighter. Mm-hmm. What would you focus on to try and make up the jiu-jitsu disparity? All defense? Hmm. Interesting. And if you don't know what's going on, Conor McGregor is fighting Nate Diaz again. 202 UFC. So a lot of times I don't like to talk about this kind of thing because... It's by the time this comes out, it'll be by the time you're listening to this, it might be over. Don't mm. care anymore. But there is a a principle here, a concept behind this that does make sense to try and discuss so people can learn and improve and something for me to think about my game. So you got this guy who's a really good striker going against a guy who's a 
pretty good striker himself. Very good. Yeah, very good. And that's one of the things that this is this is the question, the way it sets it up, as if jujitsu is the is the only thing that Nate Diaz is better at. That might not necessarily be the truth, and in fact in their first fight it was the striking of Nate Diaz that forced Conor McGregor to shoot a sloppy takedown, take it to the ground, and once he got on the ground, the jujitsu from Nate Diaz was just way too much for for McGregor. So this question it's almost a little bit off because the question shouldn't be that there's just a jujitsu disparity. The question should be, you know, what is how would you make up for the fighting? Disparity, or maybe not even that. It's how would you go against? What would you tell Connor? What would you work on? Yeah, what's the strategy? So let's just look at it as an overall strategic question. You've got a guy that's pretty. That's what 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 is he good at? That's the question. What is he good at? What are the strengths of Connor McGregor? He's fast. He's strong, but strong might not even come to play because our Diaz walking around at two hundred pounds right now. They're fighting at one seventy, so he's going to cut a lot of weight. He's going to be big and strong. He's going to be in better shape for this fight. Uh, Connor is pretty good with some unorthodox stuff. His striking is fast and fairly dynamic. So those are the things that he has going for him. What does Nate Diaz have going for him? His jiu-jitsu is really good. <laughs> really good. That's yeah, an understatement. His jiu-jitsu is sick. His striking is, especially his boxing. He's not a big kicker. Mm-hmm. So... If I was if I was McGregor, here's what I'd be doing. I mean, would I be working my wrestling? I'd be working my underhooks, of course, and and getting control and getting back to my feet when I get taken down. Immediately getting back to my feet. The way I would fight if I was Conor McGregor is I would back off with the hard punches. I would throw a lot of really fast light punches and I'd move around a lot and just try and touch and go. <laughs> that's that's what I'd do if I was Conor McGregor. I would possibly starting in the middle of the second round, maybe into the third round, five round fight, I might start throwing some leg kicks. He doesn't Nate sometimes doesn't even check leg kicks, so maybe you can start putting a hurting on him if you if you throw enough of those. But in jujitsu wise, I would teach him to disengage. Disengage because you don't want to go. You don't want to get in the OODA loop with he. The, McGregor does not want to get in an OODA loop situation with with Diaz mm. because he can't keep up with him. Yeah. He'll be he'll be changing. He'll be going to the next thing, 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 and Conor McGregor will get caught behind, and he'll won't be able to do it. So I teach him to get. Now, one thing that does make jujitsu a little bit harder if you're if you and I are doing jujitsu. And your goal, you're not tr- you. You actually disengage from me, and you're mm-hmm. just like your whole goal. If we were on the mat, shook hands, slap, bump, and we're gonna roll, and all you did try to do is stay away from me, it would mm-hmm. be a really hard round for me. It yeah. would be harder than if you attacked me. Yeah, it's harder than if you attacked me. Right. And when I did take you down, all you did was try and get back up. You didn't try and right. close the guard. You didn't try and attack me with any submissions. You just tried to get back up and get away from me. Mm-hmm. That is a much harder round for me. Than if you actually come at me with your full board jujitsu, right? Because then it's jujitsu versus jujitsu, and I have an advantage. Yep. But if it's jujitsu of mine versus run away from you, now I got to run after you. Now it's 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 a more fair fight. Mm. 
So that's what that's what McGregor needs to do. He needs to use his speed and his yeah, use his speed. And I think that's his biggest advantage. The other thing that I that, the other thing that I find about the Diaz brothers that I wish that I could I could I wish they I wish they would not train so much triathlon and train more explosiveness. I wish he was a little bit stronger, both Nate and Nick. I mean, those guys are awesome, and they're they're great fighters. But they they really train. Hey, they do they do literally do triathlons, mm. and so you're not getting explosive muscles. Now it shows that they have great cardio, mm-hmm. but I'd rather just they were a little bit more explosive. That's that's my personal opinion. Yep. Yeah, I dig it. I I have no advice i think nate diaz is so well-rounded in this as far as this matchup goes i don't know like just like that first fight I mean, yeah the first fight though you watch the first round it's not it's not a pushover it's, no no no. it's gonna be a tough that's fight not, man yeah that's in the end that's not what i'm saying at okay. all i'm saying I'm just making sure as far you know you know how like you, you know you, you attack the weaker points Right, yep. you know, like let's say I'm a way better striker yep. than one guy, and his jujitsu is way better than mine. And I yep. can stay, you know, yep. it's obvious that's where I'm gonna attack. Yep. But in this case, it's not like that. It's not like that. So I'm not, yeah, I don't know, man. The tough one. Yeah, it's a tough very, fight very for for so. Connor. It's a tough fight for for Nate too. I mean, there were some. Yeah, yeah, it, it wasn't even though the ending of the fight was very lopsided. Right. The 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 first round it was a little closer, and I think Connor thought he had magic. Yeah, and thought that some of the he even said in the post fight press conference he said, you know, he was the bigger man, right? right. And and I, I I hit him with everything I got. And most of those would stop a, a smaller man. Yeah, they didn't stop him. Yeah. And I, I think that's got to be that's got to be hard. Yeah, and I think that got to him psychologically. So if he's prepared for that psychologically this time, maybe he'll be able to stick with a game plan and not shoot. Yeah. On him, which was ridiculous. Yeah, and even the shoot, it wasn't just like, "Hey, I'm gonna decide to shoot." It was kind of like a, a you yes, know, a ditch, a ditch effort. Yeah, kind of, kind of rocked too. And now you you shoot, you're rocked, and you have to contend with Nate Diaz jujitsu. Yeah. So it's like it's not just I gotta contend with Nate Diaz jujitsu, which is bad enough, by the way. Yeah. But you're rocked, and it was like a desperation thing. Then you got to deal with it. Then you get that. So it oh, seemed yeah. like, oh, it was so quick, but it's, it was like it was just a bunch of compounding factors and yeah. culminated in that the choke. Didn't work out. Looking forward. To watching that yeah all right Agreed. next question jocko like you many leaders began as rebels <laughs> jocko's a rebel i'll tell you about his band one day how did you learn to see oh, when the I game was a kid? yeah man that elgin told you about yeah man and that you told me about too how did you learn to see the game and our rule followers at a disadvantage Okay, so yeah, I was a rebellious youth. <laughs> and you know, when I got in the SEAL teams, I was kind of a rebel a rebel as well. And as a matter of fact, if you think about it from a certain perspective, being in special operations, especially when I came in, being in special operations is almost a form of rebellion in its own right. Because mm-hmm. you're saying, Look, the regular stuff, I'm gonna do the regular stuff. Right, right. I'm gonna do the other stuff. Yeah. So that was my attitude. You know, I thought, oh, regular Navy, nah, I'm doing this. You know, so that was my rebellion. Mm-hmm. And, and and like I've explained before, joining the military, I grew up in, in New England, not a lot of, not a huge military proponent up there. Mm-hmm. And so 
that was it was almost a rebellious thing. As a matter of fact, it was a rebellious thing for me to join the military in the first place. So these are the kind of things that were rebellious. And yes, we were we were my buddies and me were rebel youth <laughs> with some rebellious rock and roll bands back in the day. So when I got to the SEAL teams, we actually were. I kind of maintained that, you know, like we're gonna be hardcore. We're gonna be maybe the word isn't rebel, but we were we were like outsiders, you know. We were like going hard, and the group of guys I was with, when the guys I went through SEAL training with, that went to SEAL Team One with me back in the day, uh, <laughs> you know, we 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 were getting after it. We yeah. were pushing hard. We were, you know, being hardcore. And I actually got told to stand down a few times for doing stuff that was a little bit too hardcore. <laughs> and, and as a matter of fact, so you get these evaluations in mm. the in the Navy. When I first got in the Navy, they had this old evaluation system where you had 15 things you were getting evaluated on. Mm. And everybody, it, it had been um, an inflation. So the highest grade you could get is a 4.0. Mm-hmm. So there was inflation of the grades at mm. the time. And so everyone just put 4.0 for everything. Mm. Pretty much. And I actually, I have this. I actually saved this evaluation of me, but I got a three eight, three point eight, in team building. And the guy that gave it to me said, uh, "You know, you're just, you're just too hard on people that are unsat." <laughs> 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 which, which I actually, he was one of the guys that I was like, you know, hard well, on. Yeah, I was hard on him a couple times. <laughs> so. And unsat. I used to use that word all the time. Yeah. yeah. Sat or unsat. Jeremy uses that a yeah. lot, too. So that was sort of, you know, we were we were rebelling by being super hardcore, I guess you could say. But then, even though I was rebellious, and again, that's a strong word. I don't know if that's the word we were, to, it's, I don't know if that's the perfect word. But I did. I love the SEAL teams, right? So, in and in working for some of the great guys that I work for, I realized that if you want to impact the teams, which I want to do because I did love the teams, then you got to try and get into some kind of leadership position. You know, mm-hmm. these guys that I respected that I worked for said, hey, "Wait, that guy controls this platoon. Mm-hmm. I want to do that. He's helping us. He's making us good." So, kind of like that old quote that the best form of revenge. Is success. It's almost like the best form of rebellion is success. Mm. And so that's what I kind of went for to a situation. I was trying for a situation where I could move forward and kind of bring this, hey, I got this now. This is my platoon, you know. So I I guess that was a little bit of a, it was a little bit simplified. But, but, you know, I don't want, again, I don't want to make it sound like I was some kind of crazy rebel in the SEAL teams. I wasn't. I was, I was into the SEAL teams. I was into doing the right thing mm-hmm. and I wanted to do do my best in the SEAL team. So I guess that's not really being rebellious at all. But I did still have some of that rebel mindset and one of the things I think is beneficial about having a rebel mindset is you question things. Right, right. You question things. You're not allowed to... You're. I was never afraid to say no or I don't agree with that. I was never afraid to be contrarian or something. I was never afraid to hold the line and take criticism. So that goes even if if you're in a group of rebels and you go against them, who's the rebel now? Mm. Well, you are. Right, so right. when guys were going down a certain path, I wouldn't I'd be okay holding the line against them because 
I was okay with being an outsider. I guess that's the word I've been looking for, like an yeah. outsider, someone that's not quite just following right, and, right. and doing what everyone else is doing. I've always been okay with being an outsider. So maybe it's not necessarily a rebel, yeah. but being an outsider and like, okay, those guys are doing it that way. No, I, I don't agree with that. And I'm okay being over here by myself, marching to my own drum, for yeah. lack of a better word. But it's kind of like only if you need to be kind thing, right? What do you mean? Like, if everyone's doing the right thing, you're going to go yeah, yeah, with that, sure. and you're going to, you know, go hard, you know, the way you do. But, yeah, you're not just like this follow the, in, fall, right, fall in line, right. you know? And I never, I would say that's something. And so if we categorize that as being rebellious, then yes. I kind of, I, I would more categorize it with being comfortable with being an outsider. Yeah. Comfortable with my own uh, decision-making process. So... And not always. I mean, there was times where I did things that other, you know, when I was younger, you're not, that's another thing when, um, you know, you hear me talk, I'm 44 years old, right? Mm -hmm. I spent my whole adult life in the SEAL teams. I didn't show up in the SEAL teams with like this incredible leadership capability and ready to write a book. No, man, I learned this stuff. I'm I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. I'm still learning this stuff. I picked stuff off along the way. So I don't want people to ever think that, you know, I was a superstar. Yeah, I wasn't. Yeah. You know, I'm still not. I'm just, I have an open mind. But now I can look back. Yeah, yeah. And I was lucky enough to have some great jobs and some great experiences that opened a lot of, uh, it showed me, I learned a lot. I, I, I had an open mind and the world taught me a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, uh, yeah. It's but fun. it wasn't, it wasn't just like, hey, I was showed up there but i would say this the lead people that are out there that are leaders keep the rebel alive keep them alive keep them under control yeah and maybe you don't let the rebel talk to other people <laughs> right <laughs> maybe and I've, I've had seal buddies that do this where they're they're rebellious they're as outsider or whatever the word we're using as I am, but they just can't keep it inside. So they're verbalizing it, and they're and what are they doing? They're making enemies. Yeah, they're making, they're they're antagonizing people. Mm-hmm. They're doing that. I never did that because I'm playing the game. I'm going to mm-hmm. win the long term strategic goal. Mm-hmm. So don't let the rebel be the one that represents you and talks and opens your mouth, but let him whisper in your ear right. and listen to it. Yeah, I talked to good policy. I, I talk to my wife a lot about the difference. There's the difference between what you think or what you feel or whatever and what how you behave. So like you can like if you I don't know, you get cut off in traffic or something. No one's going to be mad at you if you're like mad at that or if that irritates you or whatever. Mm-hmm. But if you start flipping the guy off or, or or violating traffic laws to go chase him or do you know, start behaving because he cut you behaving in a certain way, then that that's wrong. So there's a difference. You can feel like all kinds of stuff, but it, once you start misbehaving, that's when the violations come up. So that's yeah. basically what you're saying. Like yeah. don't don't let him control your drive control your yourself. Yeah, your behavior. Mind control. I think we've talked about that on here before. A little body, bit of mind control. Body control too. Yeah, the like just being a rebel. Typically, that's like. Hey, all these rules that everyone's following, I'm gonna I rebel against those rules. Right, but right. here's the thing, some of those rules are good rules. Exactly. So you can't just be a rebel to so be a not rebel. So not a blanket statement. Yeah. I'm a rebel. And that's right. why that's why I was 
kind of pulling back on that word. Yeah. It makes me sound like a, I was big rebel. I was right. not. I was, I, I loved being in the teams. Right. So why would I rebel against it? Yeah. The people I rebelled against were the guys that were not good SEALs. We rebelled against them. <laughs> like I told you, we had a mutiny. Sure. That was yeah. a rebellion. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was a straight yep. rebellion. Yeah. Had a real legit mutiny. Yeah. And went against our commanding, our, our platoon commander. Mm-hmm. And said, "Hey, to this commanding officer, said no, we don't want this guy anymore. That's that's a rebel. Yeah, we rebelled. But they, but then yep. again, everyone in my platoon was with me, so we all right. rebelled. So then was I a rebel? I don't know. Yeah. And does that make you a rebel just because you rebelled that one time? You know? Yeah. I get, think we're getting into too much semantics, aren't we? I don't know. Semantics kind of part of it. Let's not go there. All right. All right. Next question. Next question. <laughs> Jocko." How do you deal with a leader who preaches ownership but does not practice ownership? Oh, dread. Mm-hmm. The leader who preaches ownership but does not practice ownership. You know what I do in those situations? I take ownership myself. <laughs> and I've worked for all kinds of bosses that didn't want to take ownership. And you know what I did? Take ownership. I took ownership. Yeah. You work for a boss that doesn't want to lead? You know what I did? Lead. <laughs> if, for in my mind, if a boss doesn't step up or doesn't take ownership, they're not a problem. They're an opportunity. <laughs> they're an opportunity. It's an opportunity for me to step up. If you're not, if you're my leader and you're not giving me instruction, you're not stepping up and leading. Guess what? I'm gonna run with it. Mm. I'm gonna run. I'm gonna take control. I'm gonna take command. I'm gonna make things happen. And you're either gonna. You're either going to see what I'm doing and say, wow, he's taking ownership. I need to step up. Or if he doesn't have any potential at all, then maybe he looks at it and says, um, you know what, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm not fit for this. Or maybe they don't realize it's happening and you'll end up taking their job from them. Mm-hmm. Because other people will eventually realize. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing that you have to be careful of is if you say, oh, he's not leading, I'm going to lead. Then you let your ego start saying, I'm the leader. And then you flaunt it. And now you might make your boss think that you're gunning for their job. Mm-hmm. And then we can have some issues. Because now he might shut you down. He might, you know, There's all kinds of things, that, negative things that can happen there. So when you take ownership, you've got to make sure you're putting your ego in check. And make sure that you're taking ownership, but you're still giving them the credit. That's the hardest thing to do, but it works. Yeah. I'm telling you, I promise you that works. Yeah. If you take ownership, but then you give them the credit, like, hey, sir, you know, I just wanted to go through this thing right here. Here's what I did yesterday based on, you know, the guidance that you gave us. The guy didn't give you any guidance. But just make it up. Mm. Just make it up. He's, he, you know, here we go. And you just do your best to make him look good. Eventually, you're going to win. So if you got someone that's not leading, that's not stepping up, that's not taking ownership, just do it yourself. Yeah. Do it in a tactful manner. Do it in a non-ego flare-up manner. But do it. Make it happen. Get after it. Yeah, the, if you keep that goal, you know how like when you're on a team, right, you have a, a, a some objectives. It's probably just just a handful of them, typically, if yep. not just one. Close with and destroy the enemy. Yep. Yeah, make the sale. You know, whatever the goal is. If you keep the goal in mind, then you, as long as you like, really keep it in mind, you you can avoid all these. Because if you're like, okay, I'm gonna step up, just like are you saying, I'm gonna step up and lead. And then if your goal shifts from the the main goal that you guys all have to 
now my new goal is to be the leader. That's my goal, to be the leader. Then up comes the ego. Because the, being the leader, that's what you're focused on. I'm the leader, you're the follower kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Keep the goal in mind. You're going to do basically with your ownership, you're going to do your part and then some. If someone's not doing you know certain things or whatever, you're going to take the lead. You're going to do your job in it to achieve the goal. Therefore, pulling everybody ahead. So just keep that keep that goal in mind. There. Yes, indeed. Do it for the goal, not for yourself. Yeah. Good. Jocko, something I would be very interested in listening to you discuss is the art of disarming people with words. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah, and uh, good question. How do we how do we disarm people and good thing tonight we talked about maneuver warfare because we already know that we're not going to attack the strong point we're going to look for the gaps we're going to look for the weaknesses we're going to look for the openings so what does that mean that means if we're dealing with someone that has a big ego we're gonna sidestep that we might even throw some compliments out there i might be saying echo you're so good at doing this right here i could use some help doing that and now we're getting around his ego now we can start getting into his head if the person's over aggressive maybe you just have to be a little bit more accepting of them maybe if they're nervous you got to just reassure them they're hostile be, just be open-minded to what they're saying so there's a lot of ways that disarm and, and like some tactical things that you could literally like it says disarm people with words so what are words that disarm people uh, i'll give you a couple that's a good idea oh <laughs> okay or yeah, that, that actually makes good. That, that, that's good sense right there. That makes sense, right? Disarmed. Or, oh yeah, I like that. Disarmed, right? All three of those little easy phrases. That's a good idea. That makes sense. You know, I like that. Those are all things that are going to disarm somebody a little bit. And once you disarm them, they're gonna they're gonna open up. They're gonna open up a little bit. So so like once you. You're gonna you, once you get them disarmed by just opening your mind, giving them a little compliment, tell them that you like where they're where they're coming with coming from, and then you start to probe and try to figure out what's going on. And instead of being direct, right, we want to use the indirect method here. So, you know, ask questions. Say, hey, Echo, could you explain to me what what the what we're trying to get done here? That's a lot different than what are you trying to do here. Right. That's an attack almost. What the hell were you thinking? What the hell were you thinking? Mm. Hey, could you explain to me this? Because I'm not sure I understood. It. I didn't really see everything here. Or, hey, I'm having trouble understanding this. Can you can you help me? Because I'm not sure. I, I don't think I get this. So now when I say that to you, mm-hmm. you, in order to explain something, you have to actually open up. You have to say, okay, I'll fine, I'll tell you. Well, as soon as you say that, now you're opened up, right? Mm. Now you're opened up. And when you open yourself up, when you open yourself up verbally with an idea to explain an idea, then you open yourself up mentally too because now we're having a discussion and that's what I'm trying to make happen. So it's pretty easy. I shouldn't say it's pretty easy. If you think about it and you just think about those simple phrases that you can use to disarm people of, hey, that's a good idea. Or, I like where you're coming from. Oh, yeah, that, that, that actually that makes good sense or that is the way you disarm somebody. Very simple. Yeah, and there's little things you can do even outside, actually outside, straight up outside of any specific like scenario. 
where you know how some people are just more approachable than other people, and then some some people just yeah. just aren't. So what you can do, and what I've noticed is people that don't talk negatively about people and don't come in just talking negative in general. Like I knew a guy, or no, I still know him, but I don't see him anymore hardly. But every time he'd come in, the first thing out of his mouth was something like, I don't know, traffic was bad. It was something bad. Mm-hmm. You know, he was just complaining about life and it was just a matter of what particular thing he chose to complain about, but it was always a complaint, everything. And another thing he would do is, let's say someone would say something, oh, hey, did you see this or that or whatever? This, this was real cool. He'd be like, yeah, but, and then say something bad and kind of dump on it, you know? Yeah, that's true, but, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff. So don't do that. So that seems kind of easy, but you'd be surprised where... Don't be super negative, is your yeah, statement. Don't be, don't be a negative person in general. So right off Good the bat, idea. you'll be kind of one of those guys that's more approachable. But here's, here's one that's harder. I mean, it's simple, but it's, it's kind of harder to do because I think it comes kind of natural. Simple, not easy. Simple, not easy, is don't talk bad about people. And when people are talking bad about people like to you or around you or whatever, don't like jump in and, and kind of yeah. accommodate them. And I'm not saying reject them or even talk bad about them talking bad about people. Don't, don't do that. Just don't be just one. Don't of, be one of those people. Yeah. It's the, here's the thing. It's I'm going above and beyond saying don't be, you know, certain people, that's all they do is gossip about people. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's a no brainer. I'm saying never do it. Try to do, never do it at, at any cost never do it if you can because basically you're trying to establish a rep of being this positive approachable person that's what you're trying to do Mm -hmm. so even though people don't take specific mental notes like oh you're talking bad about this person you always talk bad about people they you feel it so you ever you ever been around somebody who tells tells you secrets every time they see you like hey i'm not supposed to tell you this Mm -hmm. but this and you're like, dang, this guy's telling me all, you know, all yeah. these cool secrets. I like being around him, and that's typically why people tell and secrets. And I'm never going to tell him any secrets. That's <laughs> exactly right. So you know, this guy's talking bad about people, or this guy's being negative or whatever. When it comes to you, why, why would I want to trust in this guy or talk mm. to this guy about this, especially if we're going to do something together? You know. So you're kind of coming at it from the other perspective, not how would you disarm someone. You're just coming at it from how do you be a person that doesn't even need to be disarmed yeah like just yeah exactly so you're so, so just so at the oh, start oh, point i know no you're actually right so you're saying if if i know you as a guy that doesn't talk bad and doesn't tell secrets and yeah. doesn't but then i'm yeah. gonna automatically be a little be bit disarmed. Dis- you're gonna start off yes, a little disarmed. I like exactly. it. so you've developed a relationship with the person yeah with everyone really make that your goal make yeah. that your goal yeah Check. Jocko, have you worked with anyone who led from an emotional or unbalanced place but learned to detach? And what helped them? Well, when I was putting these questions together, obviously here's one where you also have to use a little disarm movement to get someone that's getting emotional about something you got to get them to calm down you yeah. so you don't reciprocate the emotion don't coach people when they're angry or emotional that's not the time to say hey you know what you need to do right now is you need to calm down Chill no out. that doesn't yeah. work out <laughs> you know that that does doesn't work actually Leif was telling that story on the last podcast where he was he was losing his temper about something and i just you know stood there and said kind of smiled and said I didn't I didn't reciprocate the anger. I said, "Hey, take it easy. Mm-hmm. You know, don't worry about it." 
let's just think about it. Can you make this happen? And he's like, yeah, I can, of course. I actually, I had a, uh, one of my, one of my senior enlisted advisors, actually my first deployment to Iraq. And, uh, and he and I were old school team one guys. And, uh, one of my, one of my favorite guys in the world, actually. But he would sometimes get a little bit emotional. A little bit, a little bit, and he had this tactic that I picked up from him that I that I understood the way he, the way he addressed conflict was, and I broke it down for him eventually was simplify, amplify, and repeat. That's what he would do, <laughs> and it actually worked. It worked a lot of time on most people, and so like for instance, if I said, "Hey," uh, I'm going to need, I want to take a couple more guys on this operation. And if he didn't think I needed more guys for an operation, he'd say, well, why don't you just take everyone in the compound? I'll tell you what, just take every person on the roster. We'll give, well, that give that'll give you enough people. Then we'll take everyone. I'll, I'll, I'll start rounding everyone up right now. We'll take every single person that we have out there and I'll even grab some army guys on the way. Yeah, that yeah, was his way, yeah. and, and 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 I'd be like, no man, no. <laughs> and and but I, what I wouldn't do is I wouldn't get defensive. I wouldn't get fired up, and I would say. Hey, no, I, I'm not saying I need everybody. I'm just saying I want to take a three more guys. There's some spaces in the vehicles. It'll give us a little more ability to contain the target. And and we'd look at. The, I'd say, look, take a look at the map. We can. And so then he he calmed down. Yeah. <laughs> and he, and in this guy's case, he actually wasn't like too emotional. He was just super passionate. And when I actually broke down the simplify, amplify, and intensify. Oh, no, it was simplify, amplify, and repeat. That's what you do. Simplify, amplify, and re- repeat. When And then when, whenever we would start getting a discussion and he would start doing it, we would start laughing because he realized uh, okay. that that's exactly so, what he was doing. So the simplify, amplify, repeat, that's that's what the name you put on his little That, that was thing his that methodology. Yeah, yeah, You know, yeah. if you said, like I said, if I said, hey, I need a couple more guys, he would say, well, we'll just take everyone then. If that's what you need, you right. need every single guy. You know, he would yeah. simplify what you said. He would amplify it and make it more extreme, and he would just repeat it yeah, over yeah. and over again. Yeah. And, and most people that he did it to, they would feel stupid because of what he did to them. You know, mm-hmm. he'd say, "Well, no, I don't need." I'm not. Uh, they yeah. would just feel stupid, and he'd say, "So just yeah, it's ridiculous," and right. and he'd win. <laughs> but uh, we had we we would laugh about it. But but like I said, he wasn't actually too emotional. Um, he was just fired up about stuff which is a positive thing <laughs> but someone that is actually too emotional so like i said you got to stay calm you don't don't coach people when they're angry you set a good example and then when people calm down later you talk to them about like hey man that wasn't cool and you gotta you gotta spin it right because you're trying to get you're trying to you don't want to like literally coach because if I say echo, I need to coach you on something, then you're defensive and all that. Right. But if I say, "Hey, man, I, oh man, I rely on you because of your expertise, and I think you're the only guy in the platoon that can actually make this happen." So if you're losing your temper, man, that doesn't. All of a sudden, I can't count on you, and I need you because mm-hmm. you don't make good. I mean, we none of us make good decisions if we're all bent out of shape on something. Mm-hmm. So I gotta please. Can you just? Can you help me? By just hey man, if you start if you start getting angry about something, just realize it's gonna affect your decision making, and we can't have that man. We need to come. We need to make the good decisions. People are counting on us, mm-hmm. and that's how um 
handling someone that gets emotional about stuff. Yeah, that that what it's some simplify repeat one, <laughs> but, right? Girl, simplify, amplify, and repeat. I'm not gonna say all girls do this, but hmm. some wives might do. Like you said, some um, wives with the last name Charles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it ultimately, I think if you know, and you're if you're in a good relationship, you don't really take it that seriously. Right. But but yeah, you say like I don't know, you know, hey, you you were. You said something mean to me or whatever, and they'll be like, "Well, then why'd you marry me then? Why don't, why don't you just devo- <laughs> you know you, they right take there. it to the to that next Simplify, level? Amplify, amplify, and repeat. Yeah, or, or watch out for that one. Or hey, go to this one time, long time ago, we first got together. She was uh, she said she wanted me to get orange juice. I went to mm. to the store, I was going to the store, wanted me to get orange mm-hmm. juice for whatever reason. I forgot the orange juice. Oh, I didn't man. choose not to get the orange juice. I forgot, just forgot. You know, you come home, forget the orange juice. She said something along the lines of, does anything I say have any importance <laughs> to you at all? That's that's what that, that is, that's right? Amplify, amplify. Yeah. And all she needs to do is say it more than once, and you got the repeat as well. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess to answer that question, no. Yeah, most things are pretty important. I mean, maybe not the orange juice. <laughs> at that moment, you know, I forgot. Um, the, another tactic, like when you talk to people, like to calm them down or whatever, like let's say some they lose their temper all the time or something yeah. like that, and you have to address like them losing their temper. Be like, hey, you, you know how how you use the word passionate? Passionate mm-hmm. is, is is basically like a, a an excuse word for someone being like, you know, when people like it's I'm just euphemism. passionate, yeah. I'm passionate. No, bro, it you can can't. be. It can be a euphemism. Well, he, here's the thing: being passionate and being emotional is, are two different things because you can be passionate about something and not lose your temper and not being emotional. They're two different things. So people will be like, they'll put that on and so it sounds kind of acceptable mm-hmm. it's simply not true but so if you if the but you can use that to your advantage you can be like hey i know you're passionate i dig it man it's one of the things i like about you mm-hmm. and another thing that i like about you is that you're also a thinker <laughs> that's why boom then you say what to do Check that's out what you do. go with the, the, with the ninja mind <laughs> like the it. key line there is that's what i like about you or what i like about you is this and then they kind of take on that role yeah, for sure you know you're it's disarming like, hey, them yeah yeah, You're disarming them. There you go. Very good, very good. Next question. Jocko, what do you think of the saying, you get more bees with honey? They actually asked Leif this too, but he's not here. You get more bees with honey. I always, I always actually heard... You catch more flies with honey than with vinegar, but it's the same idea, and it, it, it's something I I agree with. I mean, obviously, this comes down to the R word relationships, and always what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build the relationships. So I'm gonna put out the honey, you know. I'm gonna put out the honey. Mm-hmm. The carrot is 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 preferable to the stick. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, which is another way of saying it. The reward, the good stuff, the so, so so yeah, totally. That that absolutely works better. Um, now you can give people too much honey, and now they get type two diabetes. <laughs> they get lazy. They get out of shape, and they don't work anymore. Right. So you can't. You gotta. That's that's the that's the dichotomy that you need to balance as a leader. Not being too hard, but not being too soft. Not being too aggressive, but being aggressive enough. That's the dichotomy, but the the bottom line is you need to treat people well. That's what you need to do. You need to not spoil them, but give them respect. 
and build the relationships. And if you make that your goal, when I work with all these different companies, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always saying, listen, make your goal with this person that you're having a problem with, make your goal to build a relationship. That Make that your goal. Mm-hmm. When they say something negative, say something positive. When they want to blame something on you, say, yeah, you're right. It's my fault. Build a relationship with the person. That's going to strengthen the team. It's going to be a thousand times infinitely better than having an antagonistic relationship with somebody. Mm. Yep. Couldn't so, agree with that one. Uh, and also, you know, when you're leading with vinegar, when you're leading with fear, mm-hmm. and you're, leading with, you're, you're beating people with a stick, that does not work out good in the long run. Do you have to have consequences sometimes? Yeah. But the team that is following somebody because they want to do their best for that leader right. is going to beat the team that is doing things only because they're scared of the leader. Right. Yeah, they if they're trying to avoid the stick, that's going to be where they operate in. They're going to operate enough to avoid the stick. Exactly. Because really, that's the goal, to avoid the stick. Yep. There's no honey. They're not going to really. go above and beyond. Yeah, I think he said something very wise in uh, Office Space. What does he say in he Office said, Space? He said he was in his little review. He got hypnotized. Did you watch Office Space? I've watched it a million yeah. times. So so he gets hypnotized, all right? So now he tells the truth, or he doesn't care, you know, about things. So he's like, he's real open and honest. He goes in, into his little review, which is supposed to be this kind of tense thing. And they say, um, like, what's up? You know, some, I don't know, they ask him some stuff. And he's like, it's a, it's a problem of motivation. Like, we're, you know, we're not, if I get, you know, all this, so he's explaining it to him, and then he's like, okay, if I'm, if I'm scared of, you know, whatever, this punishment from my boss or whatever, no, I'm just going to work hard enough not to get fired. <laughs> and, but that's true, though. It's true. absolutely true. So, yeah, like these kids who only get scolded, you know, mm-hmm. they don't get, like, compassion and, and compliment and, and support, you know, they mm-hmm. only get scolded. A lot of times, I mean, there's a lot more to it, but a lot of times they're just going to do the minimum. And clearly, to if you go get too far in the other direction, where they get all spoiled. you get is spoiled, yep. you're too far in the other direction. Yep. And the dangerous part about get, giving too, like going too far in the other direction, how you put it, is you don't prepare them. Like they, they yeah, wind yeah. up when they're on their own, like they're not prepared for, not like, prepared like, for like the, the tough parts. Life. Yeah, the, the, yeah, and there's a lot of good parts in life, man. But those tough parts, they're there too. So if you're not prepared for them, you're going to get jacked, for lack of a better term. I think that's the correct term, actually. <laughs> All right. Uh, last question. Jocko, a great topic for me would be staying committed to life change. I start strong and fade fast into old habits. Please help. I'm going to I'm gonna have to bring in a little Shakespeare on this one. <laughs> Shakespeare. Between the acting of a dreadful thing and the first motion, all the interim is like a phantasma or a hideous dream. And that's Brutus from Julius Caesar. And Brutus in the play is plotting to kill Caesar. Someone he was loyal to. And Shakespeare, the master of understanding human nature, he captures what that feels like. And here's what these lines mean. Between the acting of a dreadful thing. So that's the moment. 
that moment when you're waiting to do something that you don't want to do. And the first motion. So that's when you actually start doing that thing that you don't want to do. All the interim. Now this is all that time. All that time in that moment. While you are waiting to take action. Is like a phantasma. Or a hideous dream. So that moment. That moment when you're waiting to do something, it's like an apparition, a hideous dream, a nightmare. And so the battle, the struggle, it takes place in that moment. It's not knowing what to do. That's not the battle. It's not actually doing it. That's not the battle. It's the moment in between. It's the hesitation. Hesitation is the enemy. And in war, understanding where the enemy is allows you to defeat him. And this is where the enemy of action, the enemy of commitment, The enemy of change, that's where the enemy lies. It lies in the waiting. And all you have to do to win is overcome that moment, the waiting, the hesitation. All you have to do is go, move, take action. Get out of bed, get your feet on the ground, step into the gym, put down the donut, and pick up the kettlebell. Do not hesitate. Do not wait. Go forward. Go to war. And win. Every single time. And I think that's all I've got for tonight. Thanks to everybody out there for listening and for all the awesome continued support we're getting from everybody. If you want to keep supporting Echo, how would they do that? Well, primarily, I would say support yourself with supplementation. Because really, that's really what it's about. Not necessarily the supplementation, but supporting yourself as well. It's kind of like when you when you um, when you fly in the airplane. Yeah, you, you know, you got to put the mask over yourself first before you. You help your infant. Yeah, yeah. Because if you're not dope, like he, anyway, you you know what I mean. The, <laughs> so anyway, if you need supplements, go to onit.com/jocko. Get ten percent off onit supplements. What does that mean? That's the best supplements. I like it. And you got 10% off. Um, I could explain why they're so good, but you, you can go on the website, read it. Just trust me. It's the only supplements uh, I take, and you too, right? Yes, indeed. Or you take something else. Flintstone vitamins, something like that. Or you can support by clicking through. Before you do your Amazon shopping, click through the website. Or just get the Trooper tool. I think that would be a lot easier. So you go on the website, get the Trooper tool. It's called Jocko Podcast Trooper Tool Chrome Extension. Click on it. 
Boom. Confirm. Boom. It's on there. Anytime you shop at Amazon, you support passively this podcast. And you're kind of official. <laughs> That's dope. I don't like the word passive, even though I know it's the correct term. Because when you are shop, that, that's a, that's a really good, easy way to support the podcast. Yeah. So I don't agree with you on the passive. Yeah, I know. I, I know. like passive. They're actively shopping, actively getting after it, passively supporting. Mm-hmm. I dig it. They actively went to the website. They actively installed the tool, or they click through. They're taking action and they're making things happen. Yep. I'm and it's them credit. And it's efficient too. Give him credit. Beneficial. Anyway, nonetheless, that's a way, and um, that's a good way. Uh, subscribe on iTunes, of course, if you haven't already. Write a review. Yeah. Too. Write a review. Somebody wrote an awesome review the other day. That's appreciated, because then we know what we're doing here. We're getting yeah. feedback. I'm yeah. reading the reviews. Yeah. And it's Echo's cool. reading the reviews. Subscribe to YouTube. We're YouTube gonna we're gonna be more a little bit more active on the YouTube, so it won't be Why don't just you get the a video lot more version. Active. I'm gonna get active. I'm gonna do it. Why don't you get a lot more? Actually, active. I'm doing it. I'm active. I'm oh, more okay. active well, now. That's good. As of right now, so that's a good. Subscribe to YouTube. That one's. How about this? Subscribe to YouTube. If I'm putting out dumb stuff, if I'm mucking it up, like right now, it's just, you know, the video version of the podcast, mm-hmm. which is cool. If you like podcasts, why not like the video version? If you even like videos. I'm going to add some stuff in there. Some whatever. Some outtakes, deleted scenes. Other stuff. Little mashups or whatever. If they're lame, just unsubscribe. <laughs> You're confident that they will not be lame. I'm confident, yeah. But you that's just my one, opinion. And I actually thought the first one was... Uh, it was pretty darn good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 But you I, know what's funny about those things? Yeah. It... it it's a big inside joke. Like for somebody, that's for like no one is that doesn't. If someone stumbles across that video right. and watches it, they're it will mean nothing to. Yeah, them. To get, they'll get way less. Anybody that sure. is in the game with us, yeah, they're, they're, they're they know what's funny. Yeah, they call those Easter like there's little Easter eggs in there, like you know the Trooper Tool video. Yeah, there's little Easter eggs in there. Yeah. If you you know if you yeah, if you I play back and pay attention or whatever, yeah. I like that. Just like the shirts, and everybody caught the, the details. Yeah. Everybody They're sharp, saw, man. Everybody saw that on your Amazon page that you displayed, you had the duct tape. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, if you look closer, it's like, well, yeah, there's this stuff. There's Easter eggs and everything. Oh, you just want to give them away. Look it's at part you. of the fun. Part of the fun. It's you, man. Nonetheless, yeah, sure. YouTube. You can support that way. And, of course, if you like the shirts, get a shirt. We've got a kind of a new one, the, the, the Trooper one. It just, it's just the basic brand in Jocko Podcast. Mm-hmm. If you're on YouTube right now. I'm wearing one right now. Yeah, Boom. you know, uh, Debbie, one of the one of the troopers. Mm-hmm. She took a picture the other day. I'm like, wow, wow. just amazing background, mm-hmm. mountains, snow capped mountains, mm-hmm. trees. Mm-hmm. Trooper, trooper T-shirt. Boom. <laughs> Outstanding. That was good. Yeah. Well, they are. I did make it a point to get the good ones. They're not like. You know, you know the process of, of, By of good, creating you mean quality. Quality, yeah. I didn't just be like, yeah. "Hey, give me the cheapest possible one, the ballpark giveaway." One. I didn't mm-hmm. do that. I was like, "Get the," you know. I went through some lengths, so they're so they're good. They're wearable. Quality. My, my goal is to be like, if you put it on, you'd be like, "This is my." Regardless of what's on it, this is my favorite shirt to wear. <laughs> That's the goal. And so the design 
is just a bonus. I like to think so, yeah. I think exactly. that's a good bonus. Yeah. But yeah, get a shirt, jockelstore.com. Boom. Get a, get a sticker, too, if you want. There's a few options there. And a coffee mug. And may or may not have some Jocko white tea. Pomegranate. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, we, we have a little look. something coming out. Yep. Working with a working with a company, a lot of people would talk to me about the beverage that I drink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I drink some Alpha Brain, but my most common beverage is the yeah. pomegranate. Yep, and that and you can find that on Tim Ferriss, right? Yeah, he, that like, was the he, first. People went crazy. He, yeah, because he was asking, "Hey, what is that? What is that? What is it?" And he drank it. it, it and and, like and when thing. he drank it, he got all fired up. Listen to the, listen to the Tim Ferriss podcast. Yeah. He's like, "Oh, well, this is like an adrenaline fuel." There's caffeine in that one. Yeah, there's there's a small amount of caffeine. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I shouldn't say small. Usually, usually white tea is about a third of a cup of coffee, Mm-mm-mm. so it's pretty mild on the caffeine. Yeah. It's like a microdose of caffeine. Right. There's some antioxidants in there, and it tastes good. <laughs> <laughs> and so, anyways, I got approached about, yep. hey, we are we are fans of the Jocko Podcast, and guess what? We make tea. Boom. <laughs> we want to make your tea. Yeah. So I went through some iterations trying to find it and tune it. Yeah. The little, the mixture. Yeah. And now we got a little something. Yeah. Jocko White Tea. That's going to be good. Yeah. Uh, so we'll, we'll put it on the Jocko store, some kind yep. of connection to get it. Yep. But man, this I don't know when that'll be out, though. It'll be out sometime soon. Yeah. And you put that thing on there where people can have, get emails from us. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the the mailing list, right? Yeah. I mean, to put simply, it's a mailing list. It's the ins- It's more for like in, like insiders. You care about like I don't know insider stuff. <laughs> so I don't. You know how like there's a lot of mailing lists or whatever you can get on, and they'll like send you a ma- email every. I make it a point not to send you stuff that's like not relevant because no. you sometimes no I've signed up for that before. Yeah. No. Don't fill people's email box with stuff that is stuff yeah, yeah. it's like it's like hey here's my email violate my trust <laughs> no man no i'll send you me yeah i'll, I'll when i when if cool there's stuff something comes important up, yeah and not the kind like hey one out of all these people one of these people might be interested in this let me send it to everybody it's yeah. not that kind no is if i think everybody's gonna be interested i could be wrong but if i think that genuinely and, then i'll send you something and furthermore if there is a pandemic, epic, a disaster situation, I will be sending forth instructions <laughs> for all troopers to nope. congregate and dominate. And that's what we're going to do in the event of the zombie apocalypse. See? So, that alone right there is the reason. And at some point, see now, at some point, I may send out like a longer thing. Like, for instance, upcoming. Right. We got the muster. Right. That Leif right. and I are doing here in San right. Diego. Got to get out some details on that so people know when it's going down, all that stuff. I'm going to send that out to there so that people know what's happening and they get connected. So that's that's an example. Yeah. Am I going to email it 47 times? No. Yeah. Hey, reminder. But I know if you're enlisted on the on the mail, then you're interested in what we're saying. Yeah. So I think that's why we're putting it out there. Yeah. And we're not going to violate that. Here's my email. Violate my trust. Yeah. What the hell? You know how they'll... Because they'll send you stuff, bro. Every, like, three days. Oh, yeah, if yeah. If you let them. Sometimes multiple times a day. Oh. Who does that? 
Why would you? Why is that I'm not considered to be good names. marketing? I don't know. Is that considered to be good marketing? Somebody must be telling people to do that. I don't know. You know what? That's 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 what I don't want to do. Is market things. Oh, yeah. See. And okay. That's, and that's the thing. If anybody out there thinks I'm marketing things, stop me. Do it. Well, I did Tell learn recently there's a difference between advertising and marketing. So marketing is everything. Like if if even you wearing that shirt, that's technically oh, marketing. marketing for Victor advertising. Okay. Well. On the other hand. All right. Busted. I, <laughs> I don't want to get into a big thing here. Bro, I was talking to my Well, I guess well, then we market and we advertise for... No, we market. We don't advertise. We don't? No. Okay. Ad- what about when I like say... Ads. What about when you say, hey, Onnit has good stuff, and I say, yeah, get the curl oil. That's Onnit advertising, technically. Okay. I'm, I'm. We're in the advertising. Well, what I don't want to do is beat people down with, you know, buy this, buy that. I don't want to do that. Yeah. On it is actually supporting the podcast, and I support On it. That's Joe Rogan's company, and Joe Rogan's a great guy who helped us out. Who? Why, by the way, we're sitting here because of Joe Rogan. FYI. All right. The other way, I also you got the. Um, you can buy a little book called Extreme Ownership, <laughs> written by myself and my brother Leif Babin, who was on the last podcast, podcast thirty four. He was also on podcast eleven, and we wrote a book. It's about leadership. It's about war. It's about business. It's about life. And it's available in hardcover and digital audio format. Both Leif and I, we read the sections that we wrote, so that's cool. And you know what's cool is get it for yourself, which is cool. It'll help you. But then help your team. Grab them a copy. Yep. And you're helping us, you know, a little bit. Yeah. As far as support goes. The thing good about that book, I said this before, but it's I, it's worth saying again, is that you know how like some books it's like okay i'm gonna you know improve in in whatever i'm gonna read this book it's gonna help me in this way or that way or whatever but this is like the kind of stuff where you can literally turn on that like right when you read a certain sentence and it's giving you whatever you know whatever this advice is whichever one it is but the extreme ownership we'll say you can turn it on right then and there like right then and there you can walk away you have to read the whole book technically Mm -hmm. and it'll you'll already be changed that's awesome you just got to do it i'm saying like not all books are like that it's like, oh yeah, it's this gradual process. That is awesome. But anyway, that's that's a big takeaway I got from it. Now, as always, if you wanna let us know what's going on in your world, you wanna continue this little talk that we're having amongst us, we're all up in the interwebs. Twitter, Facebooky, and Instagram. Echo is at Echo Charles. And I am at Jocko Willink. Now, one of the things that I made a note here to talk about a little bit gotta gotta come clean here gotta address something uh went on a little trip into the bush was out of contact before i left on the trip i stopped i didn't stop but i could no longer keep up could no longer keep up with responding there was a time there up until a week ago, maybe maybe a week and a half ago, I committed and responded to every single person that hit me on Twitter. A hundred percent. And I kept trying to maintain. And I told everyone I'm going to maintain. And I, and I maintained for a long time. For what? Six months? Seven months? Something like that? Mm. But I, I cannot maintain anymore. 
I cannot respond to every single person, um, and especially coming back from being in the field for, you know, seven days where I didn't have it or have it very sparingly. I'm getting thousands of tweets a day, which is awesome. And you know what? I do read them all. I absolutely read them all. But to respond to every single one of them, I don't I don't have time. Starting about a week and a half ago, I just said, nah, I can't do this. Because, first of all, we went to the whole thing of like, oh, we're going to go two times a week for the podcast. Or one time, two times a month for the podcast, maybe one every two weeks. Mm-hmm. Most people didn't like that. I didn't like that. I want to come in here and get it on. Yeah. So... But well, and and I used to be able to respond to the Twitter in like forty five minutes a day, which I mm-hmm. find that time I'll make that time. Mm-hmm. Then it was an hour. Then it was an hour and ten minutes, and all of a sudden it became two hours a day. And then if think about this, if I missed a day for whatever reason, or oh, missed yeah. a day and a half, five hours. Yeah. Finally, one Sunday, I sat down and I did Twitter for a stupid amount of time. You know, six something hours. <laughs> and Twitter's a great method of communication, but I gotta be more selective and disciplined about my time management. I don't wanna carry this on even further, but the reason I'm <clears throat> kinda like kinda laughing is that because <laughs> you're kinda new to social media. Yeah. So, <laughs> kinda. <laughs> but it's funny because like you're. So, this is going to sound strange, but you're that like nice of a person that you're like telling everyone like, we know, we know you can't respond to everybody, <laughs> so, bro. You were, but you're like really bothered by it. You're like, guys, I can't, I'm no, not I rude. I'm not being rude. That's what's funny. I feel bad. That's what's funny because from your perspective, it's like, it's like someone's talking to you for real and you're yeah. just like Ignoring basically them. putting your finger up saying, I don't, you know, I don't have time for you, yeah. you know, but anything we are kind understand. of, we are kind of a group, a team, right? Yeah, of which, which makes it even worse. Yeah, of which I'm sort of like the guy that facilitates the communication between right. us from a almost a leadership position. And so that. for now, people. And you know what was funny? Because uh, one of one of the troopers, a guy named Brandon, who's been in the game since day one. I forget how he found. I think yeah, I think he listened to Tim Ferriss part. He immediately like followed me on Twitter, and we were going back and forth on a bunch of stuff. And and finally, we were emailing about some stuff. We were e- emailing about uh. He was he was trying to get Timex to sponsor right. yep. the podcast or me or something because Timex is selling watches. Factually, factually, a lot of people have bought Timex Ironman watches because what? People, oh, from, from your thing, just from from, from from wanting to get in the game. You know, like <laughs> oh yeah, that's cool, man. Let's do it. It's good, you know. Man. And so a lot of people have factually bought those watches. And so Brandon Trooper was like, hey, you know what? I'm going to contact these guys. So we went back on a bunch of emails. I have pictures of me with this watch on, with this Timex watch that you see on my Twitter feed. Not the exact same watch, but the same model watch. The same model. And I have, I think, five of them right now. And actually, some Troopers sent me other older because you can't buy them anymore oh, so yeah. i have i have enough of these watches to last me for the rest of my life of these you know i think it's about five or six mm-hmm. and and i've actually done surgery on these watches over the years like, like, like fixed them yeah like Dang. one would break a certain part so i'd take another one apart and i'd put the insides in, you know so I, one day i was reading an email from brandon because we emailed back and forth on this a couple times and then the other day he emailed me just said hey just so you know 
I haven't given up. I'm still on Timex. And I sent him an email. And I was reading it on the way here to record. And uh, and as I was looking through the email, when I parked, I saw his phone number at the bottom. And I just hit, you know, it's an iPhone. I hit it. I hit <laughs> the, the thing and it called. Mm-hmm. And uh, And I said, and he's like, hey, this is Brandon. And I said, hey, what's up, man? It's Jocko. And he's like, really? I go, yeah, man, what's going on? I just wanted to touch base. And he's and, and so I said, so we started talking. And this was right as the social media, I was reaching the kind of the end of the line of social media. Yeah. And as I'm sort of thinking about how I'm going to manage and how I'm going to, like, if I could tell people, like, listen, I'm sorry, I just can't, I, can't, I physically can't do it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he says to me while we're talking, he goes, you know what's so awesome is that you respond to everybody. And I was like, no. Uh, yep. So I, I stuck with it. Yep. I said, okay, you know what? I'm behind. I'm going to sit down. And I think that's when I did like a Sunday where I just sat there like an idiot. You're not an idiot. Just, I know, but it just boom, 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 boom. Yeah. And, and the thing is, too, is a lot of people are telling me good stuff. And I'm like, I want to say, hey, man, thanks. Yeah. That's a good point. Oh, that's a yeah. good book. I'm going to check that out. Yeah. So when he told me that, I said, "Okay, I gotta hold the line. I yeah. gotta hold the line." Pressure and on. then, and then I realized if I'm gonna hold the line on that, I'm gonna let go of more important things. One of them being the podcast. Yeah. One of them being the podcast and not putting forth quality podcast, which to me is the most important thing that that, that I'm doing right yeah. now is is getting the podcast quality from a podcast perspective, right? Sure. Um. So yeah, there's my uh, there's my social media adventures. I know, yeah, but it's funny to think of it from your perspective because I would argue, I would guess that from everyone else's perspective, it's like yeah, no, no, no kidding, kidding, yeah, idiot. yeah, 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 you're freaking. But nah, man, good on you, really. You're the you, yeah, I think that's that's cool. Well, I apologize, everybody, but uh, and I'll I'm st- I'm telling you, I'm still like reading them, but it's I can't respond. Yeah, you're the man. But what I'm going to try and do, since I don't have to be sweating the the more responses if I tweet, I'm going to try and like do, be a little bit more active as things happen, cool things happen, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see how that works out. Uh, all right. To close it out, thanks always. And once again, to the uniform folks out there, the firefighters, police, and law enforcement, and of course, military members. Thanks to you all for holding the line. And to the other troopers that are out there that are listening, who have opened your ears and opened your mind. You. You who are looking at yourself every day like we do. Thinking, how can I be better? Thanks for doing that. Thanks for making that daily self-assessment. Thanks for moving forward without hesitation. And most important, thanks for getting after it. So, until next time, this is Echo and Jocko. Out.